Welcome to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and be sure to join our group on Facebook. Now relax and enjoy the show. California, we present Gene Hersholt in a new Dr. Christian story called Prelude to Thanksgiving. Presented for your enjoyment by the Cheesebro Manufacturing Company, owners of the trademark Vaseline, and producers of Vaseline Petroleum Jelly, Vaseline Hair Tonic, and other famous Vaseline specialties. Do you know that any woman can give her hair a real oil treatment for only a few pennies? Now, here's what you do. Massage Vaseline Hair Tonic generously on your scalp. Then, with your scalp feeling tingly and well-stimulated, wring a towel out of hot water and wrap it around your head. Keep this steaming up for several minutes, and then shampoo your hair. You'll really be amazed when you see how soft and lustrous your hair looks. No matter how dry your scalp has been, how dry or brittle your hair, you'll find it looks and feels better after a Vaseline hair tonic treatment. Vaseline hair tonic contains absolutely no drying ingredients. It helps the natural oils of the scalp keep your hair healthy-looking and easy to manage. You'll find Vaseline hair tonic economical, too. Only 40 cents for a generous shaker top bottle and only 70 cents for the large economy size. Now let us set the stage for tonight's Dr. Christian drama, which is called Prelude to Thanksgiving. Among Dr. Christian's favorite patients in River's End are the members of the Gardner family, Kathy, an energetic and attractive young matron, and her daughter, Catherine Ann who dubbed herself Tanny at the age of 18 months and has been called that ever since. The cast in the play includes Janet Russell in the role of Tanny, Gloria Holden as Kathy, Edwin Mills as Randy, Eugene Dorian as Bud Collins, and, of course, Rosemary DeCamp in the role of Judy Price, the doctor's secretary. As the curtain rises, we find Dr. Christian in his office, adjusting a bandage and protesting vigorously. Tanny, listen, I can't put a bandage on this ankle if you keep moving your foot around like that. Oh, my foot's going to be all right. Mother wouldn't have thought anything about it if I'd turned it, turned it any way but trying to chin myself on the cherry tree with the boys. I beat them all low. But your mother didn't like you doing it? No. She didn't say much, but, but Mother's an open book to me, Dr. Christian. I always know exactly what she thinks I should do and what she thinks about me when I don't do it. Well, why don't you try doing it once in a while? You're fond of your mother, aren't you, Tanny? I love her, Dr. Christian. I just about die for Mom. You know that. But she's so old-fashioned. Old-fashioned? Dr. Christian, she's living in the past, practically in the dark ages. Hmm. Well, I've probably been so busy I just hadn't noticed. There, um, there isn't any movement on foot that you know of to have old parents put in a little chamber, say about 30 years, though, after they have outlived their usefulness, I mean. Are you making fun of me? Because if you are... Oh, no, 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 not at all, Tanny. Well, you just told me of certain revolutionary changes, which I'm afraid in my absent-minded way I hadn't noticed. I'm only trying to get your point of view, unless you feel I'm too old even to get it. No, no, you're different. That's one of the nicest things about you, Dr. Christian. You never seem to be any special age. I can talk to you just the way I can to Randy. Randy? You know Randy, Randolph Billings. Oh, yes, of course, yes, I know him very well. <laughs> he used to suck all the paint off his toy soldiers, sir. <laughs> and I had to go up there every week or so and give him a pill. 
It frightened his mother out of her wits. I finally sent him a set of unpainted soldiers, and we all got more sleep. How revolting. Revolting? Speaking of Randy as a, as a toy-sucking baby. Well, most of us were, one time or another. So you think Randy and I are on about the same intellectual level, do you? Well, well you both have the same sort of, sort of attitude toward things. Nice and, and more practical. You think your mother's too idealistic? Heavens, yes. Listen, Dr. Christian. Mother sent me down here to have you look at my ankle. But I'll bet what she really hoped was that you'd give me a good talking to. What about? She thinks you're a profound influence in my life and that I'll do anything you say. I can't sit around all day all dressed up. I'll never go in for the things Mother wants, Dr. Christian. You're sure? Positive. I like to play games and swim, and, and I'd rather be with boys and girls because they're better sports. Really good eggs like Randy. But I can't be big-eyed and romantic and ladylike. The way I feel, all, all that sentimental stuff belongs to the, to the days of hoop skirts. What? Hoop skirts? Oh, you know what I mean. It's old hat, Doctor. Honest, it isn't. It is. The way Mother expects me to sit with my hands folded when the boys come to call. What do you do, Tanny? Well, Randy's learning to play the trap. And sometimes he brings his drums over and teaches me. And last night, the fellas all helped me finish building a kennel for Bing. If it's afternoon, why, sometimes they have football practice and they let me play, too. It all sounds very active. Hasn't Mother told you all this? I'll bet she has. I know just how she'd say it. I don't want to restrict Catherine Ann too much. But she's getting older and I can't have her running wild. You always had so much influence with the Dr. Christian. You talk to her. Well, as a matter of fact, Annie, you're wrong. I couldn't be. Well, this time you are. Your mother hasn't mentioned your your conduct to me, except to say that if I explained to you what was the matter with your complexion, you might stop eating so much candy. My complexion? What's wrong with my complexion? Well... Oh, a little bump or two. I can't be worried. Dr. Christian, listen, I... What is it, Annie? I've got the most marvelous idea. You talk to mother for me, won't you? You tell her nobody nowadays does the things she did when she was 15. I, I don't know what I can say, though. Of course you can. Try and make Mom see that I don't need to have my hair waved and that it's just a waste of money for me to have manicures. I just bite the nails anyway. Dr. Christian, it's for my life's happiness. I can't go on through all my existence fighting for, for my individuality. Oh, gee, I've got to go now. I've got a date to watch football practice. Dr. Christian, you will try to make Mom see reason, won't you? What is it you want me to do, Tanny? I want you to make her see I've got to live my own life. I want her to realize that I'm... I'm an adult. Oh, Judy. You asked me to let you know when it was four o'clock. Is it four already? Mm-hmm. Gee, I've got a rush. You will talk to Mother, won't you, Dr. Christian? You'll make her understand that this is 1939 and nobody bothers anymore about being ladylike and, and romantic. But, Tanny, wait. She'll I... believe it if you tell her. Oh, Dr. Christian, I know I can trust you. Heavens, I'll miss see Randy, seeing Randy try those new plays. Bye! Well. <laughs> <laughs> Modern youth, too much for you, Dr. Christian. Yeah, it leaves me a little breathless. <laughs> Tanny was very serious. She told me while she was waiting for you to come in that she had a very important request to make of you. I take it she feels she's living a little in advance of her time. Mm. <laughs> just, just what uh, was it you gathered specifically that she wanted me to do about her mother, Judy? Well, she told me she hoped you could persuade her mother to stop being so quaint. Quaint? Mm-hmm. <laughs> quaint? Yeah. Kathy Gardner, quaint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Well, Kathy, my dear, until I talk to your daughter, I always consider you one of the most progressive young women in Riversend. How in the world did you ever fall into this slow, senile decay? I haven't the least idea. Only a few months ago, Tanny thought everything I said was wisdom from heaven. She's always been so reasonable and open to suggestion, and then all at once... Ha-ha, came the revolution. Came the revolution. Her father overnight degenerated into a lovable old fogey, and her mother a relic fit for a museum. Life has passed us by, Dr. Christian, and so is Tanny. Oh, you seem remarkably cheerful about it. <laughs> I am. I so well remember when I felt the same way about my own mother. She took it very well. She seemed to consider it a sort of adolescent measles. Tanny asked you to talk to me, didn't she? Well, to tell you the truth, he had the same suspicion about you. Well, it's a good idea. She thinks you're wonderful. And she might listen to you when she turns a deaf ear on the old folks at home. Oh, <laughs> well... I don't believe that at the moment she'd be much impressed, even by my sage counsel and advice. Well, maybe not. I guess it's just a matter for endurance. Uh, but you do agree with me, don't you, Dr. Paul, that this is only a phase, that, that she's going to outgrow it? Oh, I'm sure of it. Oh, such a relief. To have Tanny go on through the years, considering herself the offspring of superannuated and slightly feeble-minded parents. <laughs> my last imbecility was to refuse to let her ride to Northport on a motorbike with a Collins boy. Well, we breakfasted in dignified silence, and she didn't come home for lunch. The Collins boy? I thought it was Randy Billings. Oh, I think it is Randy. But she scorns sentiment and insists she's quite impartial. Well, I quite approve of that part of her attitude. It's just that she's such a... Oh, in my mid-Victorian way, I was about to call her a tomboy. Well, you... You better not let her here, you see. <laughs> no. Well... I've got to be going. Oh, I'm glad I had this chance to talk with you. Uh, would you Would you use your influence with Tanny? I'll do what I can. Oh, thank you a lot. I, I do worry. Well, now, stop in and see an old lady now and then, won't you? Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, Dr. Christian. Well, hello, Tanny. Just getting home from school? Yes, and I've got to go right back. I forgot my history notebook. Oh, well, get in the car and I'll drop you. I'm going that way. Oh, grand. Thanks. What are you doing at our house? I stopped to see your mother about some of my clinic cases. She's doing some visiting for me. Did you, um... Did you talk to her about... About her attitude? Well, I mentioned it, but, uh... You have to take such things slowly, you know. <clears throat> How's everything going at school? We had a perfectly foul examination in algebra this morning. I probably flunked. Did you? Well, I'm afraid I did. Mother says if I didn't spend all my afternoon study periods watching football practice, I'd have better marks. Well, I can see it might interfere. Randy Billings is on the team this year, isn't he? Oh, yes. Why, he practically is the team. Yes, he's quite a star. Just wait till you see what he does at the Thanksgiving game. Everybody's crazy about him. And the fuss people make over anybody who scores a touchdown. Oh, you mustn't begrudge your hero his public, Tanny. You ought to see the way the girls at school hang around him. And they have regular fights about who gets to sit the row in back of him at assembly. That's enough to turn any man's head. Jean West is the worst. Who is Jean West? She's a new girl here. I think she's a drip. She does her hair in little curls all over her head, uses bright red fingernail polish and lipstick. That is, outside of school. They make her take it off for class. Oh, I imagine so. But she puts it on afterwards. She's a hunter. A hunter? Yes, after the men. Oh, what we used to call boy crazy, I guess. Probably. She likes Randy awfully well. Does she? Of course, Randy doesn't care anything about her. Randy likes girls who are regular, not the dizzy, dolled-up type. I see. He says the clingy stuff is just silly. 
She's always laughing at the boys who fall for it. Randy likes me because I'm just one of the fellas. I can do some things that even fellas won't try, like climbing Dead Man's Rock. You know, you know, it's sort of funny. Randy agreeing with Mom this morning. What did you agree with her about? About my riding around on Jim Collins' motorbike with him. Mom said I couldn't do it anymore, and when I told Randy, he said she was right. Oh. Did he say why? He said it was rough stuff. He said for me not to dare do it anymore. Well, maybe he... Stop here, Dr. Christian. I'll cut across the lawn. Football practice must be about over. Look at all the cars waiting. Yes, here come some of the boys now. Oh, there's Randy. I'll get him to wait and walk home with me. He'll be surprised to see me here. Yoo-hoo, Randy! Well, he doesn't hear you. Randy! Randy! Going the other way. Oh, dear. He seems to be looking for someone. Yeah, the people in that green car, I think. They're waving at him. Yes, that's Carol Moore's car. She and Dan Harvey are in the front seat. There's some girl in back. Look, Dr. Christian, Randy's getting in with him. He's getting in the back seat. Who's the girl in the back seat, Tanny? Anyone you know? Yes. Yes, I know her all right. I'd know that hair anywhere. That's Jean West. And the curtain comes down for a brief intermission in our Dr. Christian story starring Jean Hersholt. It's an intermission just long enough for me to present the testimony of another of our good customers. I'm the mother of a 12-year-old boy who just loved to play football. And quite frequently, he comes home with scratches, small cuts, or bad bruises. But I never worry. I just reach for the Vaseline jelly and take care of these minor injuries in no time. In our home, Vaseline jelly has always been a standby. For one thing, after doing the dishes, I always rub it on my hands. If I do say so myself, after 14 years, my hands still look like a bride, thanks to Vaseline Jelly. Vaseline Jelly is an important household remedy in over 90% of all American homes. It has attained this amazing record because it does these three important things. First, Vaseline Jelly forms a protective film that helps keep out infection when the skin is broken. Second, it soothes irritation and promotes rapid healing. And third, it softens and lubricates the skin by supplementing the natural body oils. Be sure you have a good supply on hand. Vaseline jelly costs only 10 cents anywhere. Turn now to the second act of Prelude to Thanksgiving. The scene is the laundry of the gardener home where Tanny is vigorously giving her dog a bath. I know you don't like this old fellow, but ooh, hold still. Oh, oh. Let me dry it good and hard. Dry. Come on. Oh, you're so beautiful and clean. Tanny. Tanny. Oh, here you are. Randy's in the living room, dear. He wants to see you. He probably just stopped by to ask me to go to the Thanksgiving dance. It's about time. Oh, the dance is going to be marvelous. They're going to give out the football letters and everything. Well, whatever Randy is, you've kept him waiting long enough, dear. All right. 
Zabbing, you old silly. <laughs> I guess you're dry. Now, don't you dare run right out and roll in the dirt. Kind of watch him, will you, Mom, till mm -hmm. I get back? All right, come here, old fellow. Hello, Tanny. Hi, want to see me? Yes, I did. That is, well, I was just going by and I thought... I was washing Bing. Oh, if you're busy... Oh, I'm all through now. I can't stay but a minute. I, uh, I got to go on down to Tad Brown's house. Today's initiation. Initiation? Sure. Fraternity initiation, you know. They work on us all day. After tonight, I'll be a full-fledged Omega Tor. Oh, that'll be wonderful. I'll have my pin tomorrow. Uh, Tanny. Yes? Tanny, there's something I feel I ought to tell you about. Uh, sort of explain. Explain? Yeah. It, it's a sort of a crazy mix-up. It's, it's about the Thanksgiving football dance. I wondered when you were going to get around to asking me. I had a bid last night from Bud Collins, and I told him I was already invited. You shouldn't have. I wish you wouldn't wait like this. You'd ask me right off as soon as you knew there was going to be a dance. Yeah, that's what I ought to do, but then things like this wouldn't happen. No? Things like what? Like, like my having to go with somebody else. Somebody else? Honest, Tanny, I don't know how it ever happened. We were just talking about the dance, nothing special, and I said how swell it was going to be to break training after the game Thanksgiving and go to the dance and get the letters and all, and... First thing I knew, she, she was saying how nice it was of me to ask her. And then she... Who's she? Jean. Jean West. And then... And then... And you asked Jean West to go to the Thanksgiving dance? That's what I'm trying to tell you about. I didn't ask her. She just accepted and... And, and you're going to take her? Well, I don't know how to get out of it. Tanny, you... You understand, don't you? You won't be mad? Mad? Oh, no. No, I won't be mad. Why should I be mad? Well, I was afraid... No, you... You want to take Jean West to the dance? What, what business is it of mine? But it is your business. We, you and I... You and I are just friends. I haven't got any strings tied to you. You've got every right in the world to, to take any girl you want to. Danny, <laughs> listen, I, I... What's that? It's, it's Bud Collins. He's calling for me. Calling for you? Yes. Yes, we've got a date. He's going to take me for a ride on his motorbike. You said your mother wouldn't let you go. She... She changed her mind. Well, I didn't change my mind. You you can't go tearing around on that bike with Bud Collins. And why not? I don't want you to, that's why. It's it's tomboyish. You used to like to have me do tomboy things. Well, I don't want you to do this. I'm going to do it right now, and I'd like to see anybody stop me. I'll stop you. How? I I forbid it. You're you're my girl, Tanny. Sorry, I've got to be going. Bye, Randy. Wait. Tanny, don't you dare go. Hello, Tan. I just dropped around. You to... take me for the ride you promised me? Well, why, yes, if you can go. I thought you Let's said... Let's start. Quick. Tell me, how do I sit? Like this? Yeah. Hold on tight. Sure you want to go now? Tanny, Tanny! Here comes Randy Billings. Is he no. at your house? Don't wait for him. Don't wait. Start the motor, bud. Quick. All right, if you say so. Oh! Hold tight. Here we go. Tanny! Tanny, stop! Bye, Randy! <laughs> Awful. 
I feel as if it was all my fault. Well, how could it be your fault, Randy? It wasn't your motorbike. I know, but she was riding on it just because I told her not to. And then just as they were starting off, the truck came around the corner and skidded. I know. And everybody came running out. And I tried to pick Tanny up. And they told me not to touch her. So Dr. Christian came. Oh, he got there as quick as he could. Judy, how bad she hurt, really. Dr. Christian wouldn't tell me a thing for sure yesterday. And when I called his office this morning, he said he still didn't know. Well, he's examining her again now. In cases like this, you uh, you can't always tell at first, you know. Her arm's broken. and Well, there may be internal injuries. Gee. You've just got to be brave about it, Randy. She'll be all right. She's just got to be. If she is, I'll... I'll devote the rest of my life to making it up to her. Making what up, Randy? Oh, everything. You know, Judy, Tanny and I have been kind of buddies ever since we were little. And we always sort of took each other for granted. Then, well, a few weeks ago, she told me her mother thought she was too much of a, a, a tomboy. That she thought she ought to begin to grow up. Yes, I believe she did feel that way. And she asked me what I thought. First, I, <laughs> I laughed at her. And then I began hearing things that, that other girls said. Jean West, for instance? How did you know that was who it was? Oh, I guessed. Jean sort of laughed at Tanny, called her my glamour girl, and then giggled. Oh, oh it made me awfully mad. But I could see what she meant. Tanny never wears lipstick or makeup like lots of the girls. And so you told Tanny you found her a little tomboyish, too, hmm? Mm, not exactly, but, well, anyhow, she began not, not liking Jean. Oh. And then... When I told her about the Thanksgiving dance and that I I was taking Jean... She went off with Bud. Was that it? Yes, that was it. Ah, oh, the poor baby. So you see, it was my fault. And, and I've got to make it up to her. It's funny how you go along, knowing a girl for years and never really looking at her at all. And then, all of a sudden, someday, something happens and, and you wake up. I, I never appreciated Tanny before, Judy. But I think she's the prettiest girl in high school. And and the nicest. There's Dr. Christian now and Mrs. Gordon. Oh, the nurse is taking care of her, Kathy. You go and get some sleep. You've been up all night. Oh, I'm all right. How is she, Dr. Christian? Is there anything dangerous? Mm, not a thing that I could discover. She's got a lot of bruises besides the broken arm, but nothing that won't heal up very quickly. Oh, thank heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> Dr. Christian... Tanny won't possibly be up for Thanksgiving, will she? So she could go and watch the game, I mean? Tanny will spend her Thanksgiving right in bed with lots to be thankful for. You can come in and have turkey with her if you like after the game, Randy. Can I? Gee, thanks. I'd like to. Dr. Christian, I don't suppose I could go in now, just for a minute, just to tell Tanny I'm glad she's better? Yes, I think you could. In fact, when the nurse mentioned you out here, Tanny made me promise to let her see you. Did she really? Can I go in right now? Just for a little while, Randy. All right. Well, I'd get better get back to the office. I'm so glad everything's going to be all right, Mrs. Gordon. Oh, thank you, Judy. I'll see you after a while, Dr. Christian. Yes, I'll be along just a few minutes. Tanny's a very sober young lady, Kathy. Yes. Perhaps I've lost my tomboy. Oh, Dr. Christian, if anything terrible had happened to her, I... Well, nothing did. She's going to be all right. Yes. Only older. She almost had a heart broken, you know, as well as her arm. You think she and Randy? Yes. Doctor's instinct for diagnosis. I had quite a talk with her, Caddy. I think you would find she's grown up a little. 
Oh, I don't seem to care whether she grows up or not, if she's going to be well, that's well, why. I but... shouldn't be surprised if she began to treat you like a human being again soon. <laughs> she may even ask you for advice. <laughs> oh, Dr. Christian, I've got so much to be thankful for. I don't insist on everything. Mm, maybe not, but I think you're going to get it. Happy Thanksgiving, Kathy. Dr. Christian say I could have company for Thanksgiving dinner? Well, he said Randy could come in and eat turkey with you if you kept very quiet. Oh, that'll be fun. He he wants to come and sit with me instead of going to the dance. What are you smiling about? I was just thinking you looked very attractive in my best bed jacket. You, you don't mind, do you? I told the nurse where it was. No, I don't mind at all. It makes a splendid background. Background? Oh, you mean for... Yes. For the fraternity pin? Mm-hmm. It's Randy's. I suspected as much. He, he got it last night. I'm the first girl he's ever given it to. Really? Well, well I mean, he, he says I'm the only one. Mom. Moms, I guess I need your advice about things. Do you, darling? Well, I'll be glad to help you if I can. What do you want to know? Well, Moms, when, when a boy says he likes you better than anyone else in the world, and, and it hurts here, and you feel so... Sort of faint and dizzy. Does that mean that, that you're in love? And so we leave Tanny and her palpitations of the heart. And now I have a word about the products that make the program possible, and then Jean Hirschold will tell you something about next week's story. Mothers write in to tell us that one of the most versatile, most economical products in their medicine cabinets is Vaseline Jelly. For over three generations now, Vaseline Jelly has been used to protect and help heal minor burns, cuts, scratches, chafing, chapping, and the countless other minor injuries and irritations of the skin. So soothing and healing that it has been made the base of several specialty products, such as Vaseline borated jelly, Vaseline carbolated jelly, Vaseline lip ice, and Vaseline camphor ice. Ask your druggist about their special uses. But whether you're buying plain Vaseline jelly or any of the Vaseline specialties, be sure the trademark Vaseline is on the jar or tube. That trademark is your guarantee of the utmost in purity. And now, here he is, our star, Gene Hersholt, as the popular doctor of River's End. <laughs> Dr. Christian, what's next week's story like? Well, next week I plan to tell you about old Mr. Holly. He's our local music teacher and the story of his various pupils from a world-famous violinist to Martha Browning, who will... Never learned that she can sing a note. Makes a very amusing play. I know you'll enjoy it. So until next Wednesday evening at this same hour, I'll say good night.
Don't fail to see the new Gene Herschel picture, Meet Dr. Christian, when it comes to your local theater. This is the first of a new series of RKO radio pictures based on the Dr. Christian radio program and starring Gene Herschel in his most famous role. This is Arthur Gilmore speaking and bidding you all good night for Vaseline preparation. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Reeve Conflict with Shadows A fast-paced story of invading darkness. The first in a series of light versus darkness, and the connection with the past to help fight for the future. When the Bathsheba invade, John Vega and Nicolay Dan must come together to stop them from destroying their worlds. It will lead them far beyond known space only to find out that this is more than a battle for territory, but a battle for the souls of mankind. But there is always hope. Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows at your favorite online bookstore. Hello? Are you there? Well, we're here. Swans are so fast, pure and gentle. Come on, come on, swing to Swan. Lever Brothers, the makers of Swan, the new white floating soap, present the Burns and Allen Show with Paul Whiteman. Our singer, Jimmy Cash, yours truly, Bill Goodwin, the six hits and a miss, and George Burns and Gracie Allen. Here they are. Well, today, George and Gracie are discussing a subject that most husbands never mention to their wives. In fact, it's a subject that never arises in the average American home. Let's listen. Gracie, you've been spending too much money. Look at this budget for November. Well, it balances. We're not spending any more than we make. I know, but that's the trouble. Some of the items in this budget are ridiculous. Milk for cats, two dollars? We haven't got any cats. No, but we have mice. Well, I don't get it. Well, if I put bowls of milk all around the house, the mice will think we have cats and they'll be afraid to come out of the hole. Oh, fine. And some night I'll kick over a bowl of milk and ruin the rug. Oh, you're right, dear. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, I know. I'll scare the mice with milk that doesn't splash. Milk that doesn't splash? Sure, cheese. <laughs> yeah, that'll scare the mice to death. Oh, I'll answer it. Okay, dear. Oh, it's the postman. Good morning, Mr. Postman. Good morning, Mrs. Burns. Only one for you today, and I'm afraid that one's a bill. Oh, well, that's all right, Mr. Postman. I realize the post office only sends us what they get. How are you feeling? Oh, simply marvelous. I took an ice cold shower. Ice cold shower this morning and then ran around the reservoir a couple of times in my shorts. I guess that's what put all this pep in me. Oh, oh no doubt about it. It is a gorgeous morning, isn't it? Cool and snappy sort of. Yeah. On a morning like this, I can feel the blood racing through my veins, can't you? Well, no, I can't, but then you're much closer to your veins than I am. Yeah, that's true. Well, goodbye, Mrs. Burns. Remember, keep smiling. Um, any, any mail there? Oh, it's just a bill, probably for my new hat. It only costs $12. $12? 
George, I only buy what I absolutely have to. Just bare necessities. Is a $12 hat a bare necessity? No, but I didn't want my head to be one. Gracie, you don't need any more hats. And today, when you buy anything you don't need, you're taking something away from our fighting men. Oh, well, gee, I, I never thought of that. I'll wrap up the hat right away. That's the idea. I wonder who would have looked better on, a soldier or a sailor? <laughs> Gracie, it's not the hat. You see, very few things are being made for civilians today. And if everybody tries to buy those things, the demand makes prices go up and we've got inflation. Oh, well, gee, the sales girl said that the hat would cause comment, but I never thought it would cause inflation. <laughs> well, let's get back to this budget. What's this silly item? Bicycle pump, one dollar. Well, that's an economy. That'll save us lots of money on breakfast food. A bicycle pump will save us money on breakfast food? Well, yeah, from now on we'll puff our own rice. Yes, that'll save us a fortune And what's this? Rose bushes, $75 Well, you know that florist Who has that lovely big greenhouse Just off Glendale Boulevard? Yes Well, I happened to be out in that direction yesterday And went through it Yeah, but I don't see any I don't see any rose bushes around here Where are they? Well, there's one still stuck in the bumper of my car <laughs> You, uh, you really went through yeah, it. Yeah, mm. but I'll save enough money to make up for it. I I'm going to buy one of those things that conductors punch tickets with. What's that for? Well, then we won't have to pay the cleaner to take the spots out of your necktie. I see. We just punch them out. Yeah. Mm. Look, sweetheart, from now on, we only buy what we absolutely need. The rest of the money goes for... For war bonds. But we do buy war bonds every month. Yes, but if we cut out if we if we cut out these silly things, we can we can really buy more. And and, and not only that, we get four dollars back for every three dollars we put in. We help prevent inflation and we help win the war. Oh, you're right, dear. Everybody should cut down on their spending and put that money into war bonds. That's the idea. So let's throw the silly budget right out of the window. Well, but don't you want to look at the items for our Thanksgiving dinner? Hmm. We'll cut that too. The turkey we had last year should have had a pilot and a bombardier. Well, this year we're only getting a 12-pound turkey, three pounds for each of us. Well, I don't follow that arithmetic. Well, Blanche and Harry Morton are going to eat with us. Not again. Those sponges have had Thanksgiving dinner at our house five years in a row. They're not sponges, George. They contribute their share. Every year, Blanche brings over a jar of her homemade pickle peaches. I know, I know. And every year, Harry helps you clean the walls when the car, the jar explodes. Sure, they're they're absolutely wonderful people. Hi, George. Hello, Gracie. What's cooking? I am. Burnt up about Harry Morton. That guy's a sponge. He's not a sponge. He is, too. We'll leave it to Bill. Now, now wait a minute, George. I'd rather not get in the middle of a family quarrel. Bill, I'm trying to prove to Gracie that Morton is a sponge. Now, you know him. What do you say? Well, George, of course, there's only one way to tell a sponge. That is, a real sponge. You rub soap on it, and if you get loads and loads of pure baby gentle suds, you've got Swan, the new white floating soap. What's Harry Morton got to do with Swan soap? Well, now, look, George, I, I don't want to get involved in a family argument. Yeah, but just answer me one question. Have you ever known Morton to reach for a check? Well, uh... Oh, come on, admit it, have you? Well, uh, maybe you don't notice his hand when he reaches across the white tablecloth to pick up a check because his hands are so soft and white. You know, he washes his wife's dishes with swan soap, George. Oh, <laughs> brother. That's swan for you, George. So kind to your hands. Mild as the finest Castile soaps. So mild you should use it not only for washing the dishes, but for every soap and water job in the house. In fact, 
Swan is Bill, for everything. Bill, I'm going to get you to agree that Harry Morton is a moocher if, it, if it's the last thing I do. What about the other day when the three of us went into a drugstore for sodas? Who paid the check? Oh, you mean the drugstore that's having the sale on Swan Soap? Yeah. How about that? Oh, it's going great. Lots of dealers are now running a big sale on Swan. <laughs> Bill, I'm talking about Harry Morton. Oh, well, he bought three bars. Oh. You know, you buy three bars and save. Yes, sir, you save in more ways than one. Well, I give up. There's a guy who invites himself to my house for Thanksgiving dinner, and nobody agrees with me that he's a chiseler. Well, now, wait a minute. Did he do that? Yes. Well, anyone who invites himself to your house for Thanksgiving dinner without being asked certainly is a chiseler. There. You see, Gracie? Oh, George, that reminds me why I dropped in. Why? Shake hands with another chiseler. So long. See you Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, I'm glad his salary is frozen. It'll be easier to break off. Anyway, Gracie, there's no reason why we should buy a turkey to feed the Mortons. Well, but, John... Look, look, Gracie, we... Why can't we eat at their house for a change? Well, uh, I could call Blanche and sort of hint around. Well, I wish you would. Of course, I don't want you to be too blunt about it. Oh, don't worry, George. She won't suspect a thing. Mm. I'll be very subtle about it. Uh, uh, hello? Hello, Blanche? Uh, this is Gracie. How about inviting us for Thanksgiving dinner this year? That's very subtle. What did you say, Blanche? Oh, oh, I see. Your mother and father are coming for Thanksgiving. What? Oh, no, no, that's all right. Yeah, we understand. And goodbye, Blanche. Well, Judge, Blanche's mother and father are going to be in town. I know, I heard. So we won't need to get a, a turkey for four people. Oh, good. We'll get one for six. Ah. <laughs> This is Paul Whiteman, and here's Jimmy Cash voicing the hopes of millions of people all over the world. When the light's gone again all over the world, and the boys are home again all over the world, and rain or snow is George didn't say positively that the Mortons couldn't come for Thanksgiving dinner. He just gave Gracie a dollar and a half and told her to buy the turkey. 
So now we pick up Gracie at Myers Market. Hello, Mr. Myers. Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Burns. Well, now, I'm in sort of a hurry. Can you wait on me right away? Why, of course I can. What would you like? Well, I'd like to place an order Gracie, for... Gracie, darling! Archie <laughs> Sagwell! Oh, well, it's good to see you again, Gracie. Where have you been keeping yourself? All around. Where have you been? Oh, here and there. Oh, hell, no wonder we haven't seen each other. <laughs> oh, what are you doing? Shopping for dinner? Yes, I bought some nice carrots. Oh, well, what a piece of luck, Tootsie. Only yesterday I read the most wonderful new recipe. It's called Carrot Supreme. Oh, sounds delicious. Oh, it is. First you take the carrots. Yes. And then you wash them. Yes. And, well, that's all I remember, but it's called Carrot Supreme, and it's wonderful. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to try it. Oh, dear. Mr. Myers has wandered off somewhere. Mr. Myers! Uh, yes, Mrs. Byrne. Look, I, uh, I don't want to be a pet, but I am in a hurry and... Could you wait on me now? Right away. What would you like? Well, I'd like... Oh, Tootsie, I noticed you're carrying a hat box. Yes, I got a new hat at Sally's. Well, I got a new hat, too, but George made me send it back. Is he trying to act like a man again? <laughs> well, he, he was right this time. We're cutting our budget down. And besides, the hat was pretty extreme. What is a new creation? Well, yeah, with a military motive. The hat had a flat top, and when you leaned over, a little toy airplane took off. Oh, my goodness, Mr. Myers is gone again. He's much too scatterbrained to run a market. Mr. Myers! Yes, Mrs. Burns? Look, I, I hate to complain about the service, but I do think you might remember that I'm in a hurry. I'm sorry, Mrs. Burns. What would you like? Well, I'd like it. Oh, Tootsie, look! Look who's driving by the market. Who, who is it, Gracie? Bill Walsh. Have you still got a crush on him? Not anymore. After what happened Saturday night, I never want to see him again. Why? What did happen? Oh, I invited him for dinner, and I thought it would be more cozy if I locked all the doors. <laughs> well? Well, there I was picking broken window glass out of my soup. <laughs> well, this is the limit. That silly Mr. Myers has forgotten all about it. Mr. Myers! Yes, Mrs. Burns. Look, if, if you want me to trade here, you shouldn't keep disappearing when you know I'm in a hurry. Okay, Mrs. Burns, what would you like? How much is turkey? Fifty cents a pound. All right, here's a dollar and a half. Give me an 18-pound turkey. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Burns, that isn't enough. Oh, yes, it is. We're only having six for dinner. No, 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 no. A dollar and a half would only buy that little turkey over there. He only weighs three pounds. Oh, wh why didn't you pluck his feathers out like the others? Well, he might not like it. You see, he's alive. Oh. Say, I've got an idea. I could fatten him up, and then the Mortons could come to dinner, and it'll only cost George a dollar and a half. Mr. Myers, I'll take him. Okay, Mrs. Burns, I'll get it. Gracie, what if George say if you bring a live turkey in the house? Oh, gee, I never thought of that. He'll be mad. He even had a fight with Herman this morning. Did he pick on that sweet little duck? Yeah, George yelled and yelled, but Herman didn't say a word. He just sat there quietly in the nest he'd made of George's shorts. <laughs> oh, such a darling. Yes. Oh, I know. I'll sneak the turkey in. Tootsie, would you lend me your hat box to hide it in? Of course I would. I've been dying to show you my new hat anyway. I'll take it out of the box. All right. Here's the turkey, Mrs. Burns. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not by the neck. You hold him by the feet. Oh, all right. Oh, my, his little feet are chapped. <laughs> well, he, he shouldn't be running around barefooted in November. <laughs> oh, Mr. Myers, why does he make that funny noise? Well, all turkeys gobble. Well, then he should eat slower. 
<laughs> or, or else take some bicarbonate of soda. Wait, look. I've got on my new hat. How do you like it? Well, do you want my frank opinion, or would you rather have me tell a little white lie? I- I'll take the little white lie. Tootsie, it's simply gorgeous. <laughs> oh, thank you, Gracie. You're welcome, Tootsie. Goodbye. Hello, dear. Oh, back so soon. Gracie, did you buy another hat? Uh-uh. And what's in the box? What box? The box you have under your arm. What arm? What arm? Well, you, you mean arm. this arm? Hmm. Uh, the one attached to my shoulder? Yes, what's in it? Oh, bones and muscles and arteries. And... Not the arm, not the arm, the box. Oh, the, the, the box. The box, the box. What's in it? Well, um, uh, a picture? Are you asking me? No, 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 I'm telling you. It's a picture of my cousin Philip. That's what it is, a picture. You're a talking picture. Oh, you know, cousin Philip spoke very little English. Chrissy, for the last time, what is in that box? Well, all right, I'll tell you. But you've got to promise you won't get mad. Will you get mad? No. How much do you want to bet? Gracie. <laughs> well, you told me I could spend a dollar and a half for a turkey. So I bought a little live one, and we can fatten them up, and that way you, we can uh, have a lawsuit over. You bought a live turkey? Well, they're easier to fatten up that way than the other kind. Oh, well, that's fine. I knew we'd wind up feeding those Whartons again. Okay, let's see this turkey that we're going to fatten up. Gee, he isn't very friendly. Hmm. He looks like he's thinking of biting my nose off. Well, look what you're thinking of doing to him. Oh, yes, I, I guess so. Oh, ho, ho, it's my darling little ducky. Oh, Herman, Mama has a surprise for you. Yes, really. Look in this box. Oh, Herman, don't be frightened. It's only a little turkey. And he's got to live with us for a while, Herman. Oh, oh, why, Herman Burns, you're jealous. This is the happiest moment of my life. From Irving Berlin's This is the Army, here's a tune that's coming up fast to be a real winner. The boys and six hits and a miss, and I'm getting tired so I can sleep. I can be 
I'm yours, I've got your picture by my bed. Soon I'll place it neath my head to keep me company the whole night through. For a little while, whatever before, I will see you smile. See, are Herman and that Tux uh, and, and that Duck still fighting in the pantry? Well, I, I, I'll look and see. <laughs> I think they're still fighting. Mm. I got the same impression. Unless we do something, the neighbors will be complaining about the noise. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past that snippy Mrs. Marks who lives next door. She she's had it in for me ever since I borrowed her vacuum cleaner last week. I don't know why. Well, maybe you kept it too long. Oh no no, I gave it back to her as soon as I finished cleaning the fish. <laughs> Very unreasonable woman. Hi, people. What brings you back, Chisler? Well, that's what brought me back. I invited myself over here for Thanksgiving dinner, and then I remembered I have a date with a girl for Thanksgiving. Oh well, it's too bad though. But Gracie, you love having her. She eats like a horse. <laughs> Oh, fine. Well, Bill, your Thanksgiving dinner's in the pantry, and he's fighting with that silly duck. Oh, a live turkey? Mm. Well, I better go out and break it up. You know, it'd be just like Herman to bite him in the part I like best. <laughs> Leave it to me, George. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> just a minute. Don't you birds realize that you get along better in life if you behave yourself and don't fight? <laughs> yes, that's so. Now, you take the case of a little swan I know, Herman. He was a good little bird, and now he's famous. They put his picture on every swan wrapper, and he's very proud. Because swan is the new white floating soap that gives you all that pure, mild lather so fast. So you see, Herman, it pays to be a sweet little bird. Yes, that's so. Oh, shut up. Oh, now, now, wait a minute. I, I didn't mean that, Herman. I meant you should be gentle, like swan soap is gentle. It's as mild as the finest Castile soap, so mild that mothers use it to bathe their babies, so mild that it's perfect for anybody's bath or shower. So, Herman, why don't you be mild and gentle, too, and put your wing around a cute, itsy-bitsy baby turkey? <laughs> why, listen, you little... you little ducky. There's, uh, there's plenty of room for both of you. So instead of fighting, why don't you go half and half? You know, like swan soap. You break it in two, put half in the kitchen for dishes and cleaning, and the other half in the bathroom for your hands and face. Now do you see what I'm talking about, Herman? 
Well, what do you say to the little turkey? Hey, ow, ow, cut it out, ow. Well, so long, George, so long, Gracie. Uh, what's your hurry, Bill? Why are you limping? Herman bit me in the part he likes best. Goodbye. <laughs> Gracie, Gracie, go into the pantry and stop that fighting or we'll be thrown out of the neighborhood. All right, dear. Oh, now, now, stop that right now. Stop it. Why, shame on you, Herman Burns. That's no way to treat a little girl turkey. Yes, yes, a girl. Uh, Herman, isn't she cute? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Why, Herman Burns. You know, sometimes I think you're older than you look. <laughs> hey, George. Gracie. Look, George, Gracie, a man you. just delivered all these things. What are they anyway? Well, they're for the turkey, George. I bought a little tub for it to swim around in, and I a also tub? bought... A tub? A tub for the turkey to swim around in? Well, yes, I thought it would be more humane. The, the turkey can get used to it by degrees, and it won't be such a shock when the time comes. Get used to what by degrees? Well, I'm going to fill the tub with gravy. Well, that's a brilliant idea. Uh, anything else? Yes, yeah, I bought a sun lamp. A sun lamp for the turkey? Yeah. Well, why did you get that? Well, mostly for your sake. For my sake? Yeah, I know you prefer dark meat. Gracie, your ideas about raising a turkey are too advanced But George, people shouldn't be afraid to try something new Suppose Marconi had been afraid to experiment We'd only have spaghetti Oh, sure, sure Gracie, this turkey is costing me a fortune Look at these price tags Top, $5 Sunlamp, $15 I could have bought three turkeys with this This is absolutely ridiculous Going out and buying (laughs) Have you a little turkey and a little duck As reported by a neighbor? Well, yes, why? Uh, May I refer you to statute 193 of this county? Hmm? Possession of two or more live fowl Shall in this county be deemed Ipso facto a poultry farm And such aforesaid property Pertaining thereof Shall be governed according to article 38 Section 17 of the laws of said county (laughs) What, uh what does that mean? Cough up ten bucks for a poultry license. <laughs> well, that does it. I'm going into that pantry, and the next time you see that turkey, he'll have parsley where his feathers used to be. Oh, but dear... Come on, come on. I'm going to settle this right now. I knew that this thing would cost me a fortune. George, George, look, look. Herman and the turkey. Herman's got his wing around it. Ah. <laughs> ah. Oh. Oh. Well, that's fine. Get this. Love comes to Herman Burns. George, George, come inside a minute. What? George, I won't let you touch that turkey. It would be inhuman, that's what it would be. What would be inhuman? To eat our son's fiancé for Thanksgiving dinner. Well, 
Well, George and Gracie will be right back, so I've got just a second to remind you to stop in where you see the swan sign that says, Buy Three and Save. Take advantage of the big sale on swan that so many dealers are now running. And don't forget, sale or no sale, you save with swan. You save because swan gives you more soap per penny than any leading toilet soap tested. And you save because swan goes further than easily wasted package soaps. No matter what you use swan for, it saves you money. So buy three bars and save. Well, here they are again, George and Gracie. Gracie's on the phone. Hello? Is this Harry Morton? Oh, Harry. Harry, will you tell Blanche George is on his way over with a little turkey? He wouldn't let me keep it. It's pretty small, but you can fatten him up. How? Well, just feed a chocolate fudge sundae. Well, sure, sure it'll work. Look at your wife. Next week at the same time, Eddie Cantor will be George and Gracie's guest. And there's a rumor that Ida... There's a rumor that Ida might join the Beverly Hills Uplift Society. So the makers of Swan, the new white floating soap, join George and Gracie in inviting you to tune in. Remember, Swan now brings you two of radio's top shows, George Burns and Gracie Allen and Tommy Riggs and Betty Lou over another network. And now till next week, this is Bill Goodwin saying, Well, I, Swan, how about you? <laughs> Price, price. You'll find the baking you turn out fluffy and light. Price, price. You're sure to hear your family shout. What a delight. For cake, pie, don't ask the thing you fry. Price, price. What's that you say you're going to try today? Why, sure. Price, price. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey. Travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. GraceGrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris in his orchestra. The orchestra opens a program with Go South, young man, from the Cotton Club Review. Whether it's a company dinner or just a regular family affair, any meal will be a greater success if it's topped off with a delicious dessert. And no dessert is more delicious or more popular than Jell-O. Jell-O is a grand dessert, easy to prepare, swell to look at, and luscious to taste. Jell-O is crammed with extra-rich fruit flavor, a true fruit goodness that rivals the flavor of fresh, ripe fruit itself. But remember this, there's only one Jell-O, and only Jell-O brings you that special extra-rich fruit flavor. So if you want to top your dinner with a dessert that will be an assured success, serve Jell-O. But be sure you get genuine Jell-O. Don't accept any substitutes. Look for the big red letters on the box. They spell Jell-O.
Rumors Go South, young man, from the Cotton Club Review. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you a man who every Sunday night at the same time walks up to the microphone, looks it square in the eye, and says... Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Don, that was a cute opening. That was a nice introduction and nice teamwork, too, I thought. You and I certainly work well together, don't we? Oh, yes, we do, Jack. It's remarkable the way we seem to balance each other. What was that, Don? <laughs> I say it's remarkable the way we balance each other. I think so. Of course, we would have a little trouble on a seesaw. <laughs> <laughs> say, Don, can you imagine the both of us on a seesaw? Me way up in the clouds and you down on the... <laughs> Gee, it makes me dizzy. Oh, boy. Well, uh, Jack, do you want me to... Oh, don't you dare! <laughs> My feet are flat enough now. <laughs> anyway, Don, we're too old to be playing around on a seesaw. Yeah, let's go over to the sand pile. Oh, let's drop this silly talk. We're getting a little bit goofy. Aren't we all? Hello, Jack. <laughs> well, Kenny, of all people, what are you doing here? Well, I was on my way to the movies and I got lost. <laughs> well, you couldn't have got lost in a better place. We can use you here. Yeah. Say, Jack, I want to thank you for inviting me over to your house for Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, that's all right, Kenny. You're always welcome. And I want to thank you, too, Jack. And I also want to congratulate you for cooking that big dinner all by yourself. Oh, it was nothing, Don. I always do that. You may not know this, but I'm considered to be quite a cook. Oh, you are? Oh, for years I've been known as Prudence Benny of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and my pies. You know, I'm famous for my lemon marinju. Marinju? Well, that's Marengay. Mar oh, is that the way it's pronounced? Oh. Gee, you learn something every day. Huh? Well, well, so you cooked the Thanksgiving dinner all by yourself, eh, Jack? Yes, Phil, with my very own hands. Why didn't you come? Did you have a previous engagement? No, just a hunch. Oh, oh, oh well, you missed something. It was a grand meal. We had all the trimmings and everything you wanted to drink. Everything. Gee, everybody else had wine with each course, and you made me drink milk. Well, Kenny, you're too young. Besides, milk is good for you. Milk goes with anything. Doesn't go with my brown suit. <laughs> well, the turkey was good, wasn't it? Say, Jack, don't tell me you served that old bird Andy Devine gave you last week. Yes, Bill, and it was all right, wasn't it, Don? Well, it surprised me, Jack. That turkey looked so tough, and yet it turned out so tender. What did you do? I cooked it with a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> that did it. A blowtorch? That's a fine way to cook a turkey. Why didn't you put it in the oven? I tried to, Phil, but it kept jumping out all the time. <laughs> I can't understand it either. I put paperweights in the dressing. Oh, hello, Mary. Hello, kitchen mechanic. Hmm. Well, Mary, did you giving dinner? No kidding. How was it, Mary? Oh, it was well. We had everything from soup to bicarbonate of soda. <laughs> hmm. And what mashed potatoes? I'll say. They were so lumpy, Jack had to serve them in the sugar bowl. I didn't have to. I was short of dishes. Gee, I thought those mashed potatoes were swell. They were so nice and tan. Yeah. <laughs> Tan potatoes? Well, the stove was crowded, and I had to cook them under the sun lamp. Oh. <laughs> anyway, the turkey was delicious. I got a wing, and it was swell. I got a leg, and it kicked me. Oh, it did. I got a neck with a collar button in it. Why don't you stay out of the kitchen, Jack? That's a woman's job. Now, Phil, that's the most ridiculous thing you've ever said. That's ridiculous. The men are better in everything. Our greatest cooks are men. Our greatest dress designers are men. Our greatest dancers are men. Our greatest... <laughs> what are you laughing at? When you get to mothers, watch out. <laughs> well, the greatest fathers are men. 
got that over. Anyway, it's a fine thing to come to my house for dinner and criticize it. That was real home cooking. Why, you never tasted such rolls in all your life. Boy, were they... Ha- not. I had to jack mine up to butter it. A fine appreciation after the trouble I went to. I work and slave over a hot stove, and what do I get? Oh, Jack, now what's the matter with you? They're only kidding. Why, everybody had a good time and enjoyed the dinner. Oh, no, they didn't. And here's something else I wasn't going to mention, but I will now. This will fix you guys. (laughs) I had five people to dinner, and six spoons were missing. Six? I took two. Well, give me one back. Don't be a pig. Do you want the the one from the Brown Derby? (laughs) No, the one from the Ambassador. I've got a set. And now if you fellas are all through heckling my dinner, maybe we can have a selection from the orchestra. Play, Phil. For two cents, I tear up my cookbook. by the orchestra with a vocal chorus by Phil Harris. Phil, that was quite a surprise. I didn't know you were going to slip in a solo there. Did you, Kenny? No, I didn't either. Oh, it was just a sudden impulse. It was, eh? What made you sing? I'm mad at the piano player, and he hates my voice. (laughs) Oh, well, you certainly fixed him. What are you mad at him for? Oh, he tells everybody that I don't know how to lead an orchestra. Why, that's unreasonable. Oh, it's reasonable, all right, but I don't like it. Well, I don't blame you, Phil. I know how you feel. There are people right on this program who think they know more about comedy than I do. Yeah. (laughs) Kenny. But it's true, Phil. Everybody wants to be a comedian. They all think they can get laughs. I know, Jack. But for real laughs, none of us can top that Maxwell of yours. Boy, that's really terrific. Yeah. By the way, Jack, how's the old tub behaving? Oh, it's all right, Don. I've had no trouble, but I, um... Well, I... I think I'm going to get rid of it. Get rid of it? Why? Oh, because nobody has respect for private property anymore. That's why. (laughs) Tell them what they did to your car, Jack. What happened? Oh, it burns me up just thinking about it. Now, what was it, Jack? Well, 
I stopped in the store for a cigar, and when I came out, somebody had written on my car, Lulu loves Butch. (laughs) Gee, I was mad. Lulu loves Butch? That's awful. I didn't mind that so much, but I don't even know the people. Well, it's your own fault, Jack. You brought it on yourself when you put that sign on the back of your car. Sign? Well, what does it say, Mary? Tune in on Jack Benny every Sunday night. Well, that's legitimate advertising. And so is this. Ladies and gentlemen, Jell-O is America's favorite dessert. It is economical, easy to make, and comes in six delicious flavors. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Burns me up. Why don't Butch and Lulu get their own thing? Oh, forget about Butch and Lulu. Well, anyway, I'm going to get rid of it. Did you for Mary? Yes, here it is. Oh. Uh, for sale or exchange, Maxwell Touring Car. All modern features, including self-starter and one-man top. Excellent view, only three blocks from the station. Say, well, what's that got to do with it? My uncle sold a house that way. Oh, oh. Car in first-class condition, owner satisfied, but could feel better. <laughs> The fine ad. Huh? Uh, right, wire, or phone, Jack Benny, care of Lonely Hearts Club, Hollywood. <laughs> I don't belong to that anymore. Anyway, that ad ought to bring some results. Say, Jack, yeah. I can't understand what you want to sell your car for. Okay, why? Gosh, you, you've only had it a little while, and you're always bragging about it and fussing over it and going around with it all the time. Well? And now you want to part with it. Yes, I do. Gee, you're fickle. <laughs> Well, Kenny, if you're so interested in my car, why don't you take it off my hands? Oh, I might at that. What do you want for it, Jack? Well, uh, well, let me see. Hmm. Well, Kenny, would, uh, would $95 be too much? Hades, yes. <laughs> oh, it would. Well, if you're really interested in my car, maybe I can shave it a little. Oh, don't bother fixing it up. Well, Kenny, I can see that you don't want a car, so forget about it. Well, I'll think it over while I'm singing my song. Yeah, do that. What are you going to sing, Kenny? Moon over Manakura from the picture Hurricane. Well, that's a beautiful number, and right up your alley. Oh, wait a minute. Come in. Mr. Benny? Yes? Are you the party who had an ad in the paper regarding a Maxwell? Yes, I am. Are you in the market? I was, but I got out just in time. (laughs) Goodbye. Now, there's a lucky fellow. Sing, Kenny. Thank you. 
Hurricane, sung by Kenny Baker. And you know, Kenny, there's one thing that always impresses me. It's that last note. Goes on and on. Why do you hold it so long? I never give up a song without a struggle. <laughs> oh, well, it's very effective. But, Kenny, in order to keep your voice in such perfect condition, you must do a lot of practicing. I'll say. I sing in a bathtub every morning. Oh. And you know, Jack, I had the most embarrassing thing happen to me once. What was it? I reached for a high note and swallowed the soap. <laughs> So, ooh, that must have been awful. Yeah, I bubbled for a week. <laughs> Bubbles Baker. <laughs> Mary. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for want of something better to do, tonight we are going to offer a play in the form of a nature study. A little drama entitled The Private Life of a Bumblebee, which we will present in three buzzes and one sting. It certainly will. Quiet. <laughs> Now, I will play the part of a rosebud. <laughs> and Don, Kenny, and Phil will be insects as usual. Uh, this will go on. Uh, there's the phone, Jack. Let it ring. We've got a program to do. Oh. Okay. Maybe somebody wants to buy your car. Oh, oh yes. Give it to me. Talking. Uh, would you like to have a talk? Uh, oh, slap her, Mom. Let me talk to you. It's my nickel. Go ahead. Well, slap, look. I'm busy right now. Call me back later, will you? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a customer for your car. You have? Who is it? My wife's brother. Oh, your brother-in-law. Well, look, Slap, if he's a relative of yours, I'd rather not sell him my car. Go ahead. It'll serve him right. Well, okay. Bring him right over. Where are you, Slap? I'm around the corner in the drugstore in my new overcoat and a telephone booth. Hmm, are you standing up or sitting down? I don't know. It's dark in here. <laughs> Well, look, Slab, bring your brother-in-law right up, and if I sell the car, I'll give you a nice commission. Why not? Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, Mary, that ad did get results. Huh? Come in. Hello, Sandra. Slapperman, how did you get here so quick? Well, quick. I got stuck in the elevator. Say, <laughs> Jack, I want you to meet my brother-in-law. Well, 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 this is a pleasure, Mr. Ginsburg. I'm very, very happy to know you. Hello. <laughs> Uh, well, Mr. Ginsburg, I understand you're very much interested in buying my Maxwell. Is that right? I'm not telling. 
Now, look, if you want to buy my car, Mr. Ginsburg... Oh, say, Jack. What, Mary? I don't think you've got a Chinaman's chance with this guy. What Chinaman? Who's a Chinaman? <laughs> if the hat fits, put it on. Stay out of this, Mary. Now, look, Mr. Ginsburg, if you want to buy my car, it'll have to be a cash proposition. You understand that? Oh, don't worry, Jack. He's got the cash. But only last week in the Irish sweepstakes, he won a prize amounting to... It's a lie. <laughs> Boys, boys. It was in the neighborhood of $5,000. Why did you tell him? Did I say exactly? <laughs> now, look, fellas, wait a minute. Let's not take up a lot of time arguing. Mr. Ginsburg, do you want to buy the car or not? Don't be yesing with my money. Quiet, quiet, and it's all behavior. There's your etiquette. Look who's talking etiquette. If it wasn't for me, you couldn't even speak English. Is that so? <laughs> You said it. Now I'm satisfied. <laughs> hey, boys, what is this, anyway? The affairs of Anatole. <laughs> now, look here, Anatole. A man with your money should own a car like this. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you have it for $95 because I like you. Make it 50 and drop the affection. <laughs> now, look, Slap, I'd like to sell the car to your brother-in-law, but $95 is the lowest I can take. I'm walking out. <laughs> All right, 85. I'm still voting. Well, go ahead. I don't care. Wait a minute, Anatole. Please, don't be a chimpanzee. Come here. For who's Mr. McCarty in the magazine? Who's the man again? The doctor showed enough support. <laughs> I need it like a hole in the head. And besides, he looks like a crook. I resent that. Say, Jack, did they say anything about jello? That I'll buy. Mazel tov. <laughs> Now, look, at what's going to happen here? Am I selling the car or not? Ah, hold on, Jackie boy. I know how to cleanse the deal. Take us out for a ride, and if Anatole likes the car, he'll buy a telephone time. <laughs> All right, I'll take you out for a ride, and then we'll talk business. Is that okay with you, Mr. Ginsburg? I'll take the ride, anyhow. Well, he's weakening, Jack. All right, you and Anatole can sit in the back seat. You'll find it nice and comfortable. Uh, play something, Phil. Come on, Mary, you can sit in front with me. I will not. Quiet, I bought cushions this morning. Let's go, boys. So long, gang. So long, Jack. We're Come on, Anatole, make it snuffy. All right, don't push me. <laughs>
Well, Mary, the car's rolling along pretty good. No trouble so far. We've only gone half a block. Well, is that bad? Say, Mary, turn around and see if the boys are enjoying the ride. Okay. Oh, Jack, I can only see Schlepperman. What? Hey, Schlepp, where's Anatole? I'm sitting on him. He wants to jump out. <laughs> well, I'll speed her up. You'll see something. Hold on, everybody. Hey, what's that? I wonder what that noise is. Now the spark plugs are doing the Big Apple. <laughs> hey, Anatole, how do you like the way the car runs? Quiet, I'm getting seasick. And I ain't got an appetite neither. Hey, Jack, look out. Look out for that bump. What bump? Oh, I see it. Well, that wasn't so bad, eh, Mary? No, but your friends just left. <laughs> they did. Hey, Flip, Anatole, where are you? They fell out. Well, I better go back and get them. Wait a minute, fellas, I'm coming right back. Don't bother. I wouldn't buy a tenner house. I don't blame them. That's a fine thing, Mary. Why didn't you notice that bump sooner? You're driving. I am not. You've got the steering wheel. I didn't before we hit that bump. Well, give it back. You haven't even got a driver's license. Might as well go home now. <laughs> Better stop at this gas station. That bump knocked the air out of my tires. Me too. <laughs> nice landing, Jack. <laughs> Well, I was going pretty fast there, you know. Good evening, sir. What'll it be? I'd like some nice, fresh air. For breathing or tires? Tires, of course. Okay. Do you want any gasoline? No. He makes his own. I do not. <laughs> All right. Put in two gallons, buddy. Two gallons? Is this car on a diet? <laughs> Don't get gay. Just put it in. Okay, sporty. <laughs> Where's the gas tank? What? Where's the gas tank? Under the seat. Get up, Mary. <laughs> Gee, is that the gas tank? Yeah. I've been using it for an ashtray. That's fine. Right here, bud. Hey, Bill, put in two gallons. I've got it. Hey, that's enough. I said two gallons. I'm sorry, mister, but we gave you two and a half. Well, I'm not going to pay for it. I asked for two gallons, and that's what I want. It's only a matter of eight cents. I don't care what it is. You made the mistake, not me. But, gee, it's only eight cents. Young man, do you realize that a family in two cents? So can you. Quiet. Oh, Jack, don't be so tight. I'm not tight. It's not the money. It's the principle of the thing. I'm not going to pay for one more drop than I ordered. All right, I'll match you. Double or nothing. Oh, no, you won't. What do you think I am, a chump? Quiet, Mary. <laughs> you guessed it. All right, buddy, what do I owe you? Two gallons, that's 32 cents. You want to pay it all now? <laughs> yes, and don't be smart. Here you are. Come on, Mary, let's go. Come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Doggone it. I'll be glad when you get rid of this piece of junk. Oh, it'll start this time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, there she goes. Look out, Jack. You're in reverse. I am. There's a car behind you. Watch out. Oh, what's the matter with me anyway? Hey, you, where do you think you're going? 
I'm sorry, mister. It was all my fault. Of all that careless dope, say I want to put you right in my nose. Hey, you, you can't say that to Jack. He can, too. Quiet. <laughs> now, look here, mister. If I've damaged your car, I'll pay for it. You better or you'll be sorry. Oh, yeah? Let's beat it, Mary, before I lose my temper. Oh, boy, you were lucky that time. I wasn't scared of him. He didn't upset me. Yeah, then take that cigar out of your ear and let's go. <laughs> oh, I was looking for that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Here's a swell new dessert your family's going to love. It's quick and easy, and it's delicious. The name of it is Pear Strawberry Mold, and it's a tempting combination of luscious strawberry jello and canned pears. And it's so easy to make that anyone can prepare it. But so colorful, it even makes a swell party dessert. Here's all you have to do. Just dissolve a package of strawberry jello in a pint of hot water, turn into a mold, and chill until firm. Unmold on a platter and decorate with slices of crisp canned pears and maraschino cherries. A beautiful mold of shimmering strawberry jello, garden pears. And it tastes every bit as good as it looks. For strawberry jello is packed full of delicious, extra rich fruit flavor. All six of Jell-O's delicious flavors have that extra rich fruit flavor, too, which makes every Jell-O dessert a triumph ever for the one and only genuine Jell-O. This is the last number of the ninth program in the new Jell-O series. We're with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Say, Mary, isn't it funny how nice and smooth the car runs when you and I are all alone in it? Huh? Yeah, that's always the way. Yeah. Oh, darn it, another flat. Fix it, Mary. No, it's your turn. That's right. Good night, folks. J-E-L-L-O. Jimmy Baker has appeared on this program through courtesy of Mervyn Leroy Productions. The melody, Mama That Moon's In Again, is from the big broadcast of 1938, and Sweet Someone is from Love and Hisses. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Into Shadows Fire, the second book in the world of Strangers and Pilgrims. A fast-paced story of the continuing battle between light against dark and learning about the past will help fight against the shadows of the future. Over a decade has passed since the FTL ship has returned and John Vega and Nicolay Dan have once again joined the effort known now as the Union of Light to fight the newly formed Paganic Imperium. On the world of Sulia, help is needed. The Union must help save the people of the city of Galgani from being tortured and killed because of their beliefs. They must flee their city and begin an exodus across the stars. But the Empire will not let them go that easily, for they are the chosen people of the Lord of Light. But first, they must find a fleet of their own. Thermani Electric escaped with the Bathshi from the Shadow World and is now the Emperor of the Imperium. The only person he trusts, Sashiana makes her way back with the others only to question her own soul. As he remembers his own past and hearing of Sashiana's return, he is encouraged that now he can take his place in the galaxy. Look for Into Shadows Fire, pick it up at your favorite online bookstore. Maxwell House Coffee presents Good News of 1939. <laughs> 
The makers of Maxwell House Coffee are happy to present their Thanksgiving program from the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios in Hollywood. We have with us tonight America's most popular family, the Hardys. Lewis Stone, Mickey Rooney, Cecilia Parker, Ann Rutherford, and Faye Holden. You'll also hear Tony Martin, Fanny Bryce, Hanley Stafford, Frank Morgan, Meredith Wilson, and your host for this evening, Robert Young. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight you will hear America's number one family, the Hardys, in an original radio playlet especially written for today. Why don't you call up some of your friends and ask them to listen? I'm sure they'll thank you for having brought them this pleasure. Thanksgiving Day somehow always brings us thoughts of hay rides and old-fashioned barn dances. So as long as the jitterbugs have swung everything from the minuet to nursery rhymes, Meredith Wilson goes them one better by bringing swing to the square dance. Here is his own original contribution to the holiday mood, written in collaboration with George Sidney. Swing the square. <laughs> Stafford has bought a brand new car. Listen. Hot ziggity. Look at her shine. That's really a car. Yes, sir. Hmm. Got to be more careful with this one. Hello, Daddy. Oh, hello, Snooks. Well, isn't she a beauty? Who? Oh. Our new car. I traded the other one in. Why? Well, we had over 80,000 miles on it. I got tired of it, and so did Mother. Why? Because she was old, and her pistons were shot. Mommy? No, the car. Oh. This one's the latest thing. It runs so smoothly you can't feel it. 
It's so quiet you can't hear it. It's got such perfect ignition you can't smell it. And as for speed, you can't see it. How do you know it's there? Oh, don't be silly. Hop in and we'll take a ride. All right. Oh, look at Now, Snooks, keep your hands off that thing. What is it, Daddy? That's the gas gauge. Light it. Oh, you don't light it. Why? Because it's the kind of gas that's that's not a gas. Huh? I mean, it's called gas, but it's really a liquid gas, whereas stove gas is a gas gas. Any gas that's invisible is really gas, but this gas is not gas because you can see it's gas. Do you feel all right, Daddy? I feel fine. Now, why is it you can't follow me? Where are we going? Nowhere. Ah! Well, what are you yelling about? You said you were going to take me for a ride. Well, sit back in your seat. All right. Oh, <laughs> look at all the pretty things. Yes, sir. That's the dashboard. Mm-hmm. Eight million wonderful gadgets. All work, too. Uh-huh. I guess your old dad knows how to pick out a car, eh, Snooks? Ha-ha. <laughs> 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 Make it go, Daddy. Mm-hmm. Now, where's that starter? Oh, I, I guess this must be it. Nope. That's the windshield wiper. Oh, here it is. We ain't moving, Daddy. Well, just a second. Ah, there. Listen to it, hum. Boy, what a car. Okay, hang on now. What's this thing for, Daddy? That's the switch for the lights. What lights? Oh, this car has retractable lights. Uh-huh. That switch works the head and tail. Uh-huh. Sure. When you pull that switch, the headlights go back and forth. Snooks, what are you doing? I want to make it wag its tail. <laughs> well, stop fooling with... There, you see? I almost ran into another car. Why? Because you're distracting me. Now sit still and don't talk. All right. Daddy? What is it? How do you put this handle back? What hand? Oh, Snooks, you've broken off the ignition lock. I didn't do nothing. I've got the car ten minutes, and now I have to spend five dollars for a new ignition lock, thanks to you. You're welcome, Daddy. Now, you just keep your hands still. Don't lean across me like that. I almost hit that man crossing the street. I want to blow the horn. All right, go ahead. Press this key ring. All right. Don't blow. What? Something's wrong. <laughs> That's fine. First the ignition lock falls off, now the horn won't work. That's marvelous. This is certainly a wonderful car. You like it, Daddy? No. I've got to get to a service station. Daddy. Now what is it? My clock ain't going. That's not a clock. That's the removable ashtray, mm. I think. Pull out that knob on the front of it. Go ahead, pull it. All right. I'm afraid to look. <laughs> Don't worry, Daddy. It ain't the clock. Oh, thank heaven. It's the radio. Oh! Well, I'm going right back to that crooked dealer, selling me a breakaway car. Will I let him have it? Why are you going so fast, Daddy? I want to catch that guy before he gets away. How much did the car cost, Daddy? Oh, two dollars. Oh, Daddy told a fib. Oh, that wasn't a fib. I was just making a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Don't go so fast, Daddy. Oh, I'm surprised this rattletrap can make 60. How do you know? Why, by the speedometer. See it? Now it points to 65. Go faster, Daddy. Oh, what for? Race, race that man on a motorcycle. What man? He's right behind us. He's been following us all the way. A cop! That's all I need now. Now, listen, Snooks. He'll hand me a ticket unless I have a good excuse. 
I'm going to tell him, uh, I, I am taking you to the hospital. Now, you act sick. Understand? Why? Never mind why. Now, don't forget, Snooks. All right, buddy, where's the fire? Now, 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 listen, officer. I was trying to make a little time, but I wasn't going over 30 miles an hour. <laughs> what are you laughing at, little girl? Because my daddy made a joke. Now, what's the joke? <laughs> he was going 65 miles an hour. Yeah. Now, pay no attention to the child, officer. She doesn't know. She must know what she's talking about. She can see the speedometer. Oh, uh, the, the speedometer's broken. <laughs> now, what are you laughing at? Daddy made another joke. And I was happy when she was born. I've been watching you, mister. Besides speeding, you almost run into another car and knock down a pedestrian. You didn't even blow your horn. Yes, I did, officer. I, I blew my horn three times. <laughs> What's the matter? Daddy pinched me. What for? Because the horn is broken. Now, listen, officer. The child is sick. She, she doesn't know what she's saying. I'm taking her to the hospital now. It's an emergency. Measles. Aren't you sick, my poor little baby? Now I ain't. <laughs> All right. That's enough, brother. Here's a ticket for you. Sign your name in my book. Oh, okay. There. You know, people like you is a menace to the community. You better watch your stiff from now on. Hey, stop your kid from climbing all over me. Get back in the car, Snooks. Come on. Well, you fixed me fine. Wait till we get home. Now I'll have to go to court with this ticket. Tear it up, Daddy. Oh, how can I? He's got my name in his book. That don't matter. What do you mean, it don't matter? Because I took his book. What? You took his... <laughs> what a Thanksgiving! <laughs> Maxwell House presents Tony Martin, popular star from 20th Century Fox, singing Summer Souvenirs. A beautiful summer evening a beautiful moon A lake A canoe And you We vowed that we'd love each other We promised our hearts that we'd never part But you didn't keep your promise You didn't keep your promise Harvest moon above is shining bright Memories of June haunt me tonight While I'm looking through my precious summer souvenirs you Didn't keep your promise Trinkets that we won in boardwalk games in types that were done in painted frames, they all speak of you, my precious summer souvenirs. I still have banners from the boat we boarded when we sailed across the bay. Songs your favorite band recorded, like the one we kept playing over and over.
Leaves are on the ground There'll soon be frost Someone else has found The love I've lost Still I'm clinging to A beautiful summer evening A beautiful moon A lake A canoe My precious summer Ladies and gentlemen, we continue with a presentation. Wait a minute, Bob. What's that siren? Hey, there's an ambulance stopped at the stage door. Well, Frank Morgan's getting out. Here he is now. Hello, Frank. You all right? Well, I'm fine. <laughs> oh. What's the ambulance for? What didn't you hear, Bob? Well, I heard a siren. What happened? My boy, you see standing before you a man spared by divine providence from the worst disaster since the Boxer Revolution. Uh, we'll discuss prize fighting some other time. What was the disaster? Well, I was driving back from Palm Springs this morning in my custom-built cabriolet, which, as you know, was originally for the king of Latvia. I didn't know that, Frank. How did you get the car? Uh, well, His Majesty got behind his payments. The, uh, the finance company stop it, Frank. said that... Fi- what was the accident? Uh, accident? Oh, yes. Well, I had dismissed my chauffeur for the day, and I was driving toward Los Angeles at a moderate rate of speed, accompanied by a charming young lady whose acquaintance I'd made at the famous spa. Palm Springs. Yes. Well, needless to say, I stopped at a very exclusive place. They held a royal suite for me. Magnificent decor, canopied beds, solid gold telephones, silk drapes, bath down the hall. <laughs> a class spot. Strictly. Well, last night as I was dining with some friends in the sumptuous refectory of my hotel, I was struck by the poison grace of this charming young lady. Was she at your table? Uh, no, she took care of two tables by the wall. Uh, <laughs> well, but on her way to the kitchen, she gave me the wink. What's that? She gave me the wink. Well, what followed? I did. <laughs> well, uh, to make a long story short, our acquaintance blossomed into friendship, and after she was fired, she consented to ride with me to Los Angeles. I can see now how the accident occurred. That's uh, not a kind remark, Young, but it's the kind of remark I expect from you. <laughs> My companion was an unsophisticated young lady. In fact, she was positively demure in a primitive sort of a way. <laughs> I was driving toward Los Angeles with her this morning, uh, and I... How far did you get? Stop those insinuations. We, uh, we left the desert and were driving up Elephant's Pass when suddenly I saw careening toward me a heavy car, obviously out of control. By an amazing piece of quick thinking, I was able to meet him head on. What a crash. The engine on the other car flew through my windshield and struck my fair companion in the side. Did it hurt her? No, but it broke three of my fingers. <laughs> both cars... Both cars were completely demolished. Fortunately, an ambulance soon arrived. The doctor dressed my injuries and brought me in, and here I am. Oh, well, what happened to the girl? Well, she'll get a lift. 
I, uh... It's my car that worries me. $8,000 worth of car completely ruined. Oh, that's too bad. Excuse me, are you Mr. Morgan? Yes, son. Well, I'm from the Prince Metal Garage. We got your car fixed up, and here's the repair bill. Uh, 57 cents. (laughs) I've been stabbed. Get out of here. A 57-cent collision. Now I don't even believe you went to Palm Springs. Master Robert, skepticism is an attribute of small minds. As a matter of fact, I was in Palm Springs on a secret mission. I was investigating the Mojave Desert on behalf of the world's largest group of mining interests. Mining now. What did you expect to find in the Mojave? What did I expect to find? What does a miser think of morning, noon, and night? What is the magic substance that energizes men and women all over the world? What are you and I working and slaving for? Maxwell House coffee. The soul of a huckster. I was looking for gold, my boy. Oh, some wildcat scheme. On the contrary, the six men who comprise my board of directors are the world's greatest financial wizards. They paid me a king's ransom to investigate the Mojave. And naturally, they never go into any enterprise unless they're certain it's the sure thing. What made them think there was gold in the Mojave? Uh, well, the chairman's wife had a dream. Uh. But uh, in choosing Morgan, they chose the right man to make the dream come true. I got out my old sluicing pan, saddled a burrow, and set off for the Frank, hills Frank. where I would... You've got the audacity to stand up here and try to make us believe you know anything about gold mining, Mr. Morgan. Klondike, Morgan, sir. The smartest sourdough that ever struck pay dirt. When the world's great bonanzas are found, Morgan is on the ground. It's going to take off in a minute, folks. Didn't I bank the Fairbanks, stock the Comstock, and Grubstake the Homestake? The name of Morgan was synonymous with successful mining ventures. Prospectors followed me like hawks because they know that wherever Morgan went, there was sure to be a big bum. I mean, a big boom. <laughs> I uh, heard you the first time. Go on, Klondike. Bob, you haven't lived till you've known the call of the open spaces. Alaska. Will I forget your virgin peaks, your tumbling rivers, your gleaming snows? I came to your raw, hungry stripling. I delved into your vitals, and you rewarded me richly. That's the most beautiful lie I ever heard in my life. Oh, I think so, too. No! What are you... Why do you take everything I say come grano salis? What's that? With a dose of salt. <laughs> I'm telling the truth, Bob. Every word I say can be confirmed by the American Historical Society. Who started the gold rush of 49? A 56, 72, 88, 94, 103. Yeah. Signals off. What a game. Now, get out of the huddle, sourdough, and tell me what you found in the Mojave. No, nothing that would impress you, young. I just happened to locate the biggest bonanza ever found in the Western Hemisphere, that's all. After two days of investigation, I found my spot and started to dig. Three feet down, I struck a beautiful nugget of virgin gold. Continuing further... How how big was the nugget? Pretty big. I continued the operation Uh, with... How big was the nugget, Frank? Uh, well, I... As big as an orange? Bigger. When we reached the ten-foot level, I was... Frank, was the nugget as big as my head? Yes, but not a stick. When I reached the ten-foot level, I was through the surface stratum, and by noon I started on the quartz. All the pints were gone, huh? Every day you get more like a master of ceremonies. Uh, 
keep digging, Klondike. Yes. The quartz continued for about 20 feet. A good sign. I was working like a madman. Sweat pouring from my face. The muscles in my bronze back rippling as I swung the pick. <laughs> Suddenly, about four o'clock, I heard the unmistakable metallic clink as my pick struck gold. It was the mother load. I assayed it quickly <laughs> with a crucible and spirit lamp and found my guess correct. It was pure 48 carat gold. I took oh, it no, to the wait nearest. A minute, wait a minute. What? The mother load was 48 carat gold? Yes. Listen, I... sluice pan. <laughs> There's no oh, such thing as 48-carat gold. It only oh. goes as high as 24. Uh, it only goes as 24. Yeah, uh, yeah 24. Well, uh, this mother load had twins. <laughs> so long, Mama. Besides being one of our finest young actors, many of you are undoubtedly unaware that Mickey Rooney is also a very talented songwriter. Mickey is very proud of his newest song, which has just been published. Sheet music on sale at all music counters. Here it is. Have a heart. Take it, Meredith. Meredith, and congratulations, Mickey Rooney. I hope your song sells a million copies. Mickey Rooney, who appears later, just walked on the stage and shook hands with Wilson. Now, Ted Pearson with the words every housewife. Have you ever had a friend drop into the kitchen and say that... Been shopping, I see. Mmm, does this package of new coffee smell good? I just got home. Sit down and I'll make you a cup. Mm. Well, there's no denying that the aroma from a new package of coffee smells good... Nor is there any denying that the aroma floating around in the air is flavor being wasted. Flavor you never get in the cup. Well, just a moment's thought supplies the answer. 
The coffee wasn't packed in an airtight container. The air got in and the flavor got out. A lot of it before she ever bought the coffee. You see, whether ground or in the whole bean, coffee starts to lose flavor the moment it's roasted, if exposed to the air. And scientific tests reveal that ground coffee packed in ordinary containers loses as much as 45%. That's nearly half its flavor in only nine days. But with Maxwell House, the coffee is taken fresh and fragrant from the roasting ovens, packed in the blue super vacuum can from which all air is first removed. Then this can is sealed under vacuum, so no air can get in, no flavor can get out. That's why Maxwell House comes to you not just days fresh, but roaster fresh, with all its rich, satisfying flavor sealed in. We hope you'll try the new and improved Maxwell House. Not only has the blend been further enriched, but due to the radiant roast process, which roasts each bean evenly all the way through, you'll get much more of the true flavor of this superb coffee. So ask your grocer for the new and improved Maxwell House. It comes in the same familiar blue super vacuum can. The one way known to science to keep coffee truly fresh. Tony Martin returns to echo the Thanksgiving Day sentiments of our entire Good News cast. He sings for the first time on the air, Thanks for Everything, by Gordon and Revell, from his forthcoming 20th Century Fox picture, appropriately titled, Thanks for Everything. Thanks for everything, every word, every sigh, every kiss. Thanks for everything, for bringing me moments like this. For taking the skies of gray. And making them blue For taking my cares away I tip my heart to you So thanks for everything Every thrill in your tender caress Thanks to you alone For all that I'll ever Thank you, Bob, for everything. And you too, Meredith, you've certainly been grand. And I'd like to thank good old Leo, the lion, and the boys and the girls and the band. Well, the old Maxwell House salutes you and thanks you. And now here's baby Snooks. And I thank my day for the candy and the lollipops and the chewing gum and the dyes and the books. <laughs> I like them. And I'm thankful for my little angel and I forgive her all of her sins. But above all, believe me, I'm thankful that I wasn't blessed with twins.
On this Thanksgiving Day, friends of Maxwell House, we know, face tomorrow with hope, good cheer, and confidence. So let's all join in expressing the wish that this prospect of better days to come be realized to the full for each and every one. Join us now in our pleasant custom, a cup of steaming, fragrant Maxwell House coffee. Now pause briefly for station identification. We continue our Good News Maxwell House program tonight, featuring a visit with the number one family in America, the Hardys. A few weeks ago, we presented on our program a duet sung by Frank Morgan and Meredith Wilson. Their performance apparently was a great success, as we have received numerous requests for another of these duets. Tonight, they have chosen the well-known classic, Il Baccio. Ladies and gentlemen, we present now as a special feature of our Maxwell House Good News program, for the first time on any radio show, the entire cast of America's number one screen family, the Hardys. You've all seen them in Judge Hardy's Children, in Love Finds Andy, Andy Hardy, rather, and you'll all be seeing them very soon in their new picture, Out West with the Hardys. 
Now, here they are in person. Lewis Stone as Judge Hardy. <laughs> Faye Holden as Mrs. Hardy. <laughs> Cecilia Parker as Marion Hardy. <laughs> Ann Rutherford as Andy's regular sweetheart, Polly. <laughs> and young Mr. Andrew Hardy, Mickey Rooney. We present the Hardys tonight in an original radio sketch called Thanksgiving at the Hardys, written by MGM's Kerry Wilson and directed by the Hardy family director, George B. Seitz. The scene is the Hardy home in the town of Carvel on the morning of Thanksgiving Day. Downstairs, the house seems deserted, save for the rattle of pots and pans from the kitchen, which reveals that Mrs. Hardy is where Mrs. Hardy has been on every Thanksgiving morning for lo these 30 years. Oh, Bill, dear. Mother, I can't. I'm not dressed. Andrew, answer the door. Oh, gee, Marion, can't you keep your shirt on? Ha-ha! <laughs> a good joke, huh? Because I can't answer the doorbell on account of because I ain't got my shirt on yet. Dear, dear. A holiday in this family is a holiday for everybody but me. James. James, where are you? Right here in the den, Mother. Well, James, how do you answer that front door? Emily, I'll do that, old thing. Goodness, suppose somebody should see me looking like this. Oh, good morning, Bailiff. Morning, Judge. Morning there, young man. Brought this bird around first thing, just like you told me to last night, Judge. Mm-hmm. Sit down. Sit down. Now, Tim Blackwood, I signed the papers last night to let you free for Thanksgiving Day. Oh, gee. Oh, thanks. As I told you, Judge, if, if I get home for Thanksgiving dinner with my mother, then she won't have to know about my being in jail. What's your real name, son? Well, that's all right. I don't blame you for not wanting to tell. But remember, you're still in jail. But, but Judge, I... Now, legally, I'm extending the limits of the jail to include the boundaries of Carville County in my own jurisdiction. But don't leave the county, that's all. Well, nothing on earth could make me break my word with you, Judge. I'll be back tomorrow morning. Good luck and uh, happy Thanksgiving. I... I didn't steal that order, Judge. It, it's a long story, but... Well, in due time, we'll go into that. Run along with you. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, what a morning. Hi, Dad. Ain't it a swell day? I mean, isn't it? I mean, excuse me. I didn't know you had company. Thank you, Bailiff. See you tomorrow, Tim. You bet you will, Judge. Okay, Judge. Who was was that with the bailiff, Dad? Somebody get arrested? Oh, young fella got lost, wanted to find a way home. Well, you seem quite jubilant this morning, Andy. I'll give you three guesses why I'm a happy man today. (laughs) It might be due to the fact that this is Thanksgiving. Oh, sure. I'm crazy about Thanksgiving because it, it means it's only one month till Christmas. <laughs> oh. Then you like Christmas more than Thanksgiving? Sure. You get turkey on both days, but Christmas you get presents, too. Anyways, I'm two-timing the turkey racket today. We're having Thanksgiving dinner at noon, so I'm having turkey here. Then Polly Benedict's having it at 6 o'clock, so I'll go over there and knock off another hunk of white meat then. Hello? Ah, Miss Polly Benedict calling? The fairest flower of Carvel? Ah, Miss Benedict, uh, this is Mr. Andy Hardy in the flesh. Dust off the royal carpet and get the trumpeters ready. 
for in a flaming chariot I hasten to thy side. Dad, when you were a kid, did you ever try high-class poetic language on a woman? It slays them. It positively slays them. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Andrew. Uh, look, sis, you don't have to put on your Sunday voice on account of this is only a holiday. Father, can't you make Andrew treat me with some respect? Andy, you must remember your sister's older than you are. Remember it? I've been trying to forget it all my life. <laughs> know what she said at the drugstore the other day? She says, I want a toothbrush, child size, for my little brother. Child size, little brother. Ah, I'm going over to Polly's. The scene changes to Polly Benedict's house. Marion and Dennis, who is Polly's cousin, have usurped the living room sofa, driving Andy and Polly to their familiar place, the front porch swing. Oh, Polly, I am not. Indeed you are. Anybody that'd embarrass a girl in front of her family. Oh, Polly, please. Just one little kiss. I said no. Uh, Polly... How'd you like to wake up some morning and look out your window and find me marching up and down in front of your house carrying a big sign that says, Polly Benedict is unfair to romance. Polly Benedict is unfair to love. <laughs> My, but you'd look funny. <laughs> if that ain't just like a woman. You talk to a woman about big, serious issues of life and they giggle. Ah, right, let's take a walk. No, thank you. We mustn't leave the house before dinner. Dinner? You mean that you... Dinner will be at 1.30. But look, Polly, you're having dinner at 6 o'clock. Oh, no. We were having dinner at 6 o'clock. But then, you know, Grandmother's always used to having it in the middle of the day, so we moved it up to noon. But that's illegal. You can't do that. i got to be home to our turkey dinner at noon. You don't want to stay and have dinner with us? Oh, I do want to, Polly. I'd rather stay and have dinner here with you than, than inherit a billion dollars, but I can't. Who suggested you're having dinner with the Benedict family? Mm, I did. And why did you want to? Oh, don't let's go into that now. We will go into it. You said that your being here to dinner with the family was, well... Oh, don't, Polly. It, it sounds all so foolish and here in broad daylight. So you're afraid to hear in broad daylight what you whispered in the moonlight walking home from the drugstore. The long way home through the woods, if you remember, Mr. Hardy. Whose suggestion was that? It was, well, it was my suggestion. And it was your suggestion to sit on the big rock under the old elm tree so that you could tell me all about this... this oh, stop it, Polly. Please don't. This opportunity for my parents to see that you were no longer a boy, but were now a man of the world. Oh, Polly. And when I told you that my mother would be just delighted to have you for Thanksgiving dinner, what did you say? I... I, I don't remember. I remember. You said that not all the lions and tigers in Africa could prevent you from being at my side on this auspicious occasion. Did I? And wasn't I nice about it? I didn't even tell you that there aren't any tigers in Africa. Look, Polly, if you please won't be mad at me, if you will please only act like a human being. Come on, let's, let's take a walk just for ten minutes. Where to? We could take a walk through the woods <laughs> and, uh, and sort of get some of those autumn leaves. Didn't you ask me the other day to help you pick some autumn leaves? I also told you that the autumn leaves I want grow out on your father's aqueduct property. Oh, but no, out that way, there are no dark, shady spots where you can persuade girls to sit on rocks and try and kiss them. Oh, you say? It's Marion. Hey, what are you crying for, Marion? I'm not crying. I'm going home. And I don't want an incorrigible infant trailing after me. Oh. Incorrigible infant. Huh. The way Marion's getting me younger and younger all the time, by next year I'll be in kindergarten. 
Goodbye, Mr. Hardy. I trust you'll enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Thanksgiving. What have I got to be thankful for? I'll go, Mother. Oh, Bella, what's wrong? That kid, Tim Blackwood, just stuck up a car the other side of the county bridge. Shot a guy, grabbed his wallet, and got away. No, I can't believe it. Not that boy. Kind of puts you in a bad light, Judge. Suppose it should turn out to be murder. Maybe I got a little too sentimental because it was Thanksgiving. They haven't caught the boy. Sheriff McMahon over in Eli County has got about everybody out. It's old Dr. Willis that got shot. That's terrible. Will you go back to the courthouse, cooperate with Eli County in every way, phone me any developments? Yeah, nice, miss. Oh, good morning, Miss Marion. Good morning. Goodbye, Jeff. Yeah, goodbye. Well, well, Marion, what's all this? Well, it started when Dennis admired my dress. Hmm, that was nice. He said it made me look simply stunning, and then, oh, Dad, then it happened. <laughs> what happened? Roof fell in? Oh, worse than that. He asked me if I'd made the dress myself. Seems to me that's a compliment. Oh, Dad, you might be the wisest judge in the world, but you simply don't know anything about women. Well, maybe you're right, honey. Uh, Go on. Well, then I said something, and then Dennis said something, and first thing you know, I told him I never wanted to see him again, and he said that suited him. Only I do want to see him. And you will. Go to the telephone. Call him up. Oh, don't you think I have any pride? I hope not. You mean you want me to humiliate myself? Why not? There's nothing wrong in humiliating yourself. There's everything wrong with pride if it keeps you from saying, Dennis, I told you I didn't want to see you again, but I do. Then Dennis will say he's dying to make up with you, and everything will be fine. But won't he think I'm cheap and changeable? Nobody ever thinks honesty cheap. Now, you run along upstairs and wash your face, and then call up Dennis. Dad, you're just the grandest father that ever lived. Emily, if I come out in the kitchen, am I safe from you? You stay out of my kitchen. I'm coming in to sit down and rest a bit anyway. Ah, there you are, Mother. Let me fix this pillow for you. Ah, you look warm. Must be hot out in that kitchen. I recognize the signs, James. What is it you want to tell me? Well, I let a young man out of jail this morning because he... Well, I believe his story that he wanted to see his mother... Apparently, that boy just committed a hold-up and shot an esteemed citizen. But it isn't your fault he went bad. It'll bring pretty heavy criticism. If I hadn't freed the boy, he couldn't have committed a crime. You mean people will blame you? Well, some might feel I'm not competent to decide such things. There'd be a lot of publicity. You and the children will bear the brunt of everything that's said against me. Of course we'll bear the brunt. That's what a wife and children are for, isn't it? Well, I was just wondering if you wouldn't forestall a lot of prolonged trouble if... Well, if I announced I was resigning from the bench. Oh, but James... Oh, your court is your whole life. You wouldn't be happy. You couldn't. Might be the better way. James, remember what happened when we were in Catalina? We didn't lose our home, did we? No... Then you were going to resign on account of that Washington business. But you didn't have to, did you? No. Well, then let's cross this bridge when we come to it. And let's not waste time talking about unimportant things. I've got some chestnut stuffing to make, and that is important. 
Mother, that is important. When a man has a wife who tosses aside the prospect of her husband's wrecked career to worry about turkey stuffing, <laughs> that man has no reason to fear any trouble in life. Bless your mother. Now you answer the telephone and forget all about courts and laws and criminals. Because you're going to carve this turkey, James Hardy. Yes. Yes, bailiff. Don't keep me posted. Oh, anyway, what's the matter? Dad, I want to join the Navy. <laughs> you you want to join the Navy? I want to bury myself in the Philippines or in a gunboat in China. Gee, Dad, modern civilization has got me down. Would it help any if we indulge in little man-to-man talk? Nope. You see, you don't know anything about women. That's the second time today. Oh, this is 1938, Dad. I'm afraid we don't speak the same language. Uh, maybe not, but I've got a hunch that Polly Benedict speaks the same language the day your mother spoke a good many years ago. Why, Pop, Mom wasn't ever as young as Polly Benedict. <laughs> no. Say, I never thought of that. You know, a guy, I mean a kid, I mean a young fella growing into manhood never thinks of his mother as ever been any younger than when he first remembers her. Oh, boy, that's funny. Just think of Mom, our Mom, going to kindergarten. <laughs> well, having had some 30 years' experience with your mother, maybe I've learned a little about women. Okay, here's the trouble, Dad. When you were young, did you ever have a have a bad reputation? Uh, well, I, I don't exactly know. In what way? Well, I, I mean, did a woman, a woman you love more than life, ever call you a cad? A what? Cad. C-A-D. You know... In more polite phraseology, guilty of conduct unbecoming a gentleman? Hmm, that's it. Well, Polly called me a cad. Uh-huh. Were you a cad? Well, when I first went to her house this morning, I did try to kiss her in the hall in front of Dennis, and she said I was a cad. Considerable truth in that. Well, but I didn't see Dennis was in the hall. I just saw a chance to celebrate Thanksgiving in the good old-fashioned way. <laughs> And the young lady refuses to be mollified? Uh, huh? You couldn't convince her you had made an error. Pop, sometimes I think you can't ever convince a woman of anything. It seems to me the necessary thing for you to do is some act that'll prove your sincerity. I did already, but it didn't work. I walked all the way down to our aqueduct property and got some autumn leaves she wanted. And I took them to her house, but she wouldn't see me, so I had to leave them. That was a nice gesture. Wait a minute, Annie. You were out of the aqueduct property near the county bridge? Yes. You didn't see or hear anything of a holdup, a shooting? Holdup, shooting? No, I didn't see anything but that, that fella. He got lost again. Fella, lost again? You know, the one that was here this morning. You said you were showing him the way home? Andy, you saw that young man out on the aqueduct property? Are you sure? Well, sure. Which way did he go? He didn't. He was sitting under a tree, and I was very polite. And went up and asked him if he was lost again, and he said no. And then I saw that he was just sitting and crying, so I... Went on picking leaves. And he was still there when you left? Of course. He's probably still there yet. Hey, what's all the excitement? What time did you first see this man? How long did you see him? Well, gee, Pop, take it easy. Let's see. I, I left Polly's about 10 to 11. I must have seen this guy first about 11 o'clock. Took me pretty near an hour to shinny up the big tree and get some of the best leaves. Hey, Dad, what are you making such a funny face for? You stay right there. Uh, don't, don't you move. Don't move. Where's that telephone? <laughs> right here's the phone, Pop. 
Gee, if it had been a snake, it'd have bit you. Ha! <laughs> you just keep checking back in your mind on what time it was you saw him. Oh, I don't have to keep checking back. I know what time it was. Say, when a man says goodbye forever to the woman he loves, he certainly is going to know what time of day it is. Hello. Hello, Bailiff. Uh, this is Judge Hardy. What was the actual moment of that holdup and shooting? You are? Well, Bailiff, Tim Blackwood has a perfect alibi. My son Andy had him in full sight for 20 minutes before the stick-up and 40 minutes afterwards. And Bailiff, go and pick him up. Uh-oh, just, just a minute, Bailiff. Andy, exactly where was this lad? Uh, down by the old stream bed, just across the county line. You're sure of that? On the other side of the county line? Positively. Oh, uh, Bailiff, you'll have to call up Eli County. That boy's legally a runaway prisoner. They'll have to take him in. He's on their side of the county line. <laughs> Dad, couldn't I run down there and tell this fella to move back across the county line? And, and then I could just say somewhere on our property. That'd be the truth. And he, he would be on our property all the time. Whoopee, Andy, you've saved the day. A bailiff, you picked that boy up. He never left my property, and I paroled him in my own jurisdiction. You take him to the courthouse, and this afternoon I'll personally drive him over, see his mother. Well, Andy Hardy, you've given one young man a real Thanksgiving today. Oh, shucks. Father, Andrew, doesn't anyone answer the bell around here? Why, it's Polly. Polly. Andy, I've been a very selfish girl, and I'm going to say what I have to say right out in front of everybody. I was mean to quarrel with you because you wanted to come home to your own Thanksgiving dinner. Gee, Polly. That's very nice of you, Polly. Polly, why, you're simply wonderful. You've just done what Dad wants me to do with Dennis, and I'm going right over and do it. Take my car, Marion. Fly to your boyfriend in the flaming chariot. Only be sure to look out for the holiday traffic, because my car ain't insured yet. I fly. Tell Mother to hold dinner ten minutes. Oh, Polly, it's too bad. You can't stay and have Thanksgiving dinner with us. But I can. Father told Grandmother out of having our dinner until six o'clock. Boy, oh boy. Now I know what a real day of Thanksgiving is. James, Marion, Andrew. Why, Polly. Oh, dear, where's Marion? Uh, Polly, you must stay for dinner. I said another place. Well, here we are again at a Thanksgiving dinner table. And in accordance with a hearty custom, we always say grace for Thanksgiving dinner. It'll be very simple and easy to say the conventional for what we're about to receive, O oh Lord, make us truly thankful. But I wonder if that's enough. I wonder if we shouldn't be thankful for the things we have as well as for those we're going to receive. Now, suppose each one of us says what he or she is thankful for. I'll start it. I'm thankful because we live in a great free country. A country whose democratic government shall never perish from the earth. Now, Mother, it's your turn. We're happy because we're all here together, well and happy. And we're thankful because we haven't got all the things we want, so we can have a lot of fun getting them. Yes. Uh, Marion? I'm thankful because I have a father and a mother who are the wisest and dearest of all people, to help me grow up sensibly and to teach me to find happiness. Now, you, Andy. Uh, Pop, I don't know how to say it. I can always use a lot of expensive words when I'm talking about nothing important. But now all I can say is that I'm awful thankful. 
from way down deep in my heart for all the things that you generally forget to be thankful for because you're used to having them. You know, things you never appreciate until you lose them. That, my son, is true American Thanksgiving. Thanks to all our audience, to the Hardy family for visiting us tonight. Over 50 years ago today in Nashville, Tennessee, in the stately dining room of a famous old hotel, you might have heard as you passed the table... Well, I declare, I never tasted coffee as good as this. It's grand. Wonderfully rich. I must find out what kind it is. Oh, waiter, do you know? Yes, ma'am. It's that new blend Master Joel Cheek perfected. He's calling it Maxwell House after the hotel. Today, Maxwell House is again the name on every tongue. People everywhere delight in the smooth richness of this new and improved Maxwell House. And this enthusiastic response is due, we believe, to three things. First, the Maxwell House blend has been even further enriched. Twelve coffee blending experts spent eight months before they found the way to enrich Joel Cheek's original secret blend. Second, the radiant roast process. By roasting each bean evenly all the way through, brings out more of the true coffee flavor. You get no weak coffee due to under-roasting, no bitter coffee due to parching. Third, Maxwell House is vacuum-packed, fresh and fragrant from the roasting ovens in the famous blue super-vacuum can. So it comes to you, not just days fresh, but roaster fresh. Tomorrow, why don't you ask your grocer for a pound of the new Maxwell House coffee? At today's low prices, now's the time to make friends with this coffee that is richer, smoother, and probably more satisfying than any you've ever before tried. Tonight in the MGM Concert Hall, Meredith Wilson continues with the answers to this questionnaire. If all the music in the world were suddenly destroyed, and you could choose just one composition to hear again and preserve, what piece of music would you choose? Tonight's selection is the combined choice of a governor's wife, the Mason City, Iowa Lions Club, a newsboy on the corner of Hollywood and Vine Streets in Hollywood, a stockbroker on Wall Street, and a postman in Hannibal, Missouri. It couldn't have been more appropriate for Thanksgiving Day. Home sweet home.
Next week, another grand good news Maxwell House show, when our special guest will be the comedian all America loves to laugh at, Joe E. Brown. And, of course, our regular gang, Fanny Bryce, Hanley Stafford, Frank Morgan, Tony Martin, and Meredith Wilson. Next week, Frank Morgan will appear in a drama entitled The Gambler, written for radio by Patterson McNutt. And may I remind you to put a must-go-see on your list for Out West with the Hardys. It's their latest MGM picture, and you'll love it. And, ladies and gentlemen, may I take this moment to wish that you and yours will enjoy many more happy Thanksgiving days. This is Bob Young saying good night until next Thursday. In the meantime, go to the movies and take the family with you. Now, until next Thursday at the same time, this is Ted Pearson saying good night and good luck for Maxwell House Coffee. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. This is the National Broadcasting Company. For a Christian sci-fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, and Nira's Assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's Assignment by Grace S. Gross. Whenever you have occasion to send a card, remember a Hallmark card will best express your perfect face, your thoughtfulness. The Hallmark Charlotte Greenwood Show. And here she is, that lovable lady of stage, screen, and radio, Charlotte Greenwood. I know that you are all familiar with the story of the turkey that turned into a Thanksgiving dinner, but our story today has to do with a Thanksgiving dinner that turned into a turkey. I didn't have memories of many Thanksgivings. Yes, especially one. I was playing in vaudeville. The theater was giving away a turkey. When I came out on the stage, somebody in the audience said, My, it's a big one, isn't it? Quite <laughs> experience, Mrs. Greenwood. Yes, and it isn't Mrs. Greenwood. It's Miss Greenwood. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're sorry. Charlotte <laughs> Greenwood has as her special guest today the distinguished actor, one of the stars of Metro Golden Mayor's Weekend at the Waldorf, Mr. Edward Arnold. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Charlotte Greenwood is brought to you this Sunday and every Sunday at this time by the makers of Hallmark Greeting Cards to remind you that whenever you want to remember someone, you'll find a Hallmark card that says just what you want to say the way you want to say it. So when you choose a card, look on the back for the three identifying words, a Hallmark card. Yes, don't forget a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, 
your thoughtfulness. Bicycle? Why, you're not fair. You know I've got a bicycle. <laughs> uh, 
That's exactly the point. Being generous with what you haven't got doesn't count. No. A fellow who's really regular gives you what he has got. Yes, and you being regular, Jack, of course, you'll give Robert the tie. Well, sure. Uh-huh. No, I mean... Exactly when you have another tie exactly like it. Well, yeah, but... You know, Jack, there might be a certain wisdom in not sharing when there isn't enough to share, but the person who won't divide up when there's more than enough, who has two when he only needs one, not only being a little bit stingy, but a little bit short-sighted. He isn't helping the other fellow, and he isn't helping himself, you see that? Yes, sure, but... Okay, Robert, you can have the tie. Can I? Thanks, Jack. I'm sorry I got sore. I guess I kind of messed up your dear drawers. Mm -hmm. I'll go and straighten it out. Thanks, I'll help you. Barbara, I'll stop and pay for the chickens, and when they're delivered, will you put them in the refrigerator? No, I don't. Now, I have got to go. Uh Uh-uh, I shouldn't have said that. Good afternoon, Miss Greenberg. Oh, come in, Mr. Reynolds. Hello, Mr. Reynolds. Uh, how do you do? Oh, you're going out, Miss Greenwood? Well, I was just about to do my Thanksgiving shopping. <laughs> I hope you have enough points. I have, but they stick out in the wrong places. <laughs> can I drive you to the market? No, thanks. It's only a hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> a hop, skip, and a jump? Miss Greenwood, you're exaggerating. It's too mild. I am exaggerating. With my legs, it's only a hop and a skip. <laughs> Thanksgiving isn't tomorrow, is it? Mm-hmm. Or is it? You mean you don't know when Thanksgiving is? You haven't been looking forward to it? Well, I have too many important things to think of to bother making a big fuss over Thanksgiving. Well, it's important to give thanks for our blessings. Here's a pretty sentiment, Miss Greenwood. But have you, have you ever looked around the world as it is today and counted your blessings? Oh, yes. I have so many I stop counting and give more time for thanks. Well, that's very fine. But you'll have to take a little time out to look over these papers. Mm. As long as you're going out, I'll leave them with you. We can discuss them some other time. They're the figures on the school lunchbox service. Oh, that's making real progress, isn't it? Oh, definite progress towards hanging bankruptcy. Miss Greenwood, why do you put so much food in the lunchbox? Well, can't we be a little generous? Generosity, Miss Greenwood, is an admirable trait for those who can afford it, who can throw money around. The Barton estate can't throw money around. You can't afford to be generous. Oh, Mr. Reynolds, we can't afford not to be generous. Generosity is the soundest investment in the world. Miss Greenwood, your head is way up in the clouds. You're like everybody else. No, I'm different. What do you mean? My feet are on the ground at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm just a grumpy old cynic. You are not, Mr. Reynolds. A cynic is an idealist who's afraid somebody will find it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe so, Miss Greenwood. I'll see you the first of the week. Aren't you coming to Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I can't make your dinner. Oh, we'll make it. All you have to do is eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can't be here. I have an engagement. Now, there's something else I can't make. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marshal, Marshal. I'm sorry. I'm catching a train for Mount City tomorrow. Oh, Mr. Reynolds. Sylvester's an expert at oyster dressing. Oh, he is? Mm-hmm. He used to work in an oyster bed in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. 
I haven't got a father or a brother or sister, but I've got a mother. We live in the country. Yeah? Yeah. We live right here. Uncle suggested that five of us and we're all at home. At tomorrow. We're having chicken for dinner. Yeah? Yeah. We never have chicken. Never? Never. Gee, I invite you for dinner when we're having some other company. Oh. You've got any news to give yourself? I get a dime for you and leave. Oh, all these are rakes, but it helps you rake somebody else's. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, come on. Okay. Oh, I closed the door, Robert. Wait, 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 Jack's outside bringing some things in from the car. Honestly, the crowds are getting worse and worse. I don't see how a person can ever get into a sort of shop. The best way is to be born there. <laughs> oh, thanks, Jack. Um, Barbara, I met Jessica Gleason and... <laughs> she didn't think she could come to dinner tomorrow because she just remembered she promised to have Thanksgiving dinner with Janet Gregory. Oh, <laughs> oh it's Mr. Reynolds backing out and... Hello, Gertrude. Well, that's okay by me. We can handle two chickens. There's only one chicken. Oh, don't be silly. That's true. I put them in the refrigerator myself. Yeah, but I gave one away to a poor boy who never had chickens ever. Oh, you did what, Robert? Gave one away. You said when anybody has chickens, they should divide up. Oh, good grief. Who did you give us to? To a boy named Dick. Dick who? Dick who? Didn't he have any other name? Of course. Well, what is his other name? Richard. Uh-oh. <laughs> Name, Robert. What is it? Where does he live? I don't know. His last name. But he lives in the country. Did he tell you what country? <laughs> Everything about this thing is going to turn out all wrong. Yeah, Robert spoiled it all. Now, Robert did what he thought was right, and when you do what you think is right, nothing is going to turn out very wrong. But I want a big party. So, Jeff, I think we're important. We'll have nobody. I want a two turkeys, and we'll have chicken. One chicken. I will just think about one chicken. <laughs> he won't have a chance to think about it. <laughs> well, why not? Because Robert gave it away. But, but what about the other one? I bought the other one from Mrs. Townley's next door. <laughs> this Thursday, Thanksgiving, many of us will visit with dear ones we seldom have a chance to see. It'll be good to renew the old ties and to know that after this happy reunion, there's a way we can keep in touch regularly. Yes, by sending greeting cards. For a thoughtful card is a visit in spirit that we can enjoy not just at Thanksgiving, but all through the busy year. At your Hallmark dealers, you'll find cards that are appropriate for every occasion. Distinctive cards for remembering your family and friends on special days, such as birthdays, wedding days, anniversaries. Cards, too, for every day. Just to say, I'm thinking of you. There are lively Hallmark cards that are clever, humorous cards. Among them, many a gay get-well message to cheer a friend who is ill. You'll always find a Hallmark card that says just what you want to say the way you want to say it. So go to your Hallmark dealers this week. And when you choose your cards, be sure to look on the back for the Hallmark name. Because like sterling on silver... The word Hallmark on the card you buy tells your friends you've cared enough to send the very best. 
Hallmark cards are on display at America's Finest Stories. Remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. Good morning, Miss Greenwood. Oh, it's Mr. Reynolds. Come in. Uh, thank you. I, uh, 
Well, I just dropped in to say that I... <laughs> I mean, look here, Miss Stevens. You must find me an old bear. <laughs> okay, if you find me a young turkey. <laughs> over for dinner. They were wonderful neighbors. Captain John Smith, Pocahontas. <laughs> oh, well, but anyway, there's nothing like a family dinner at Thanksgiving time. I remember when I was a young fellow at home with my family. Thanksgiving had a special significance. And now, when a man's all alone... Uh, you don't start out collecting friends after your quarters. No, you don't start out collecting friends at any time. You start out by being one. At any rate, Miss Green, when I came here to apologize for losing my temper yesterday, well, I was downright rude. I didn't even thank you for inviting me to dinner. Oh, that's all right. I'm sorry that you're leaving for Mound City today and can't accept. Oh, only oh, 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 I'm not leaving for Mound City today. And I do accept. Uh? With the most sincere appreciation of your kindness. Oh, you're staying for dinner? Huh? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Miss Greenwood, uh, would a man in his sober senses get on a train for Mound City when he could be here with this delightful family? Would a man give up the chance to enjoy a big fat turkey with cracking brown skin crammed full of stuffing and dripping with juice? If he would, I'd be very much surprised. I think he will be. <laughs> the fact is, Mr. Reynolds, oh, pardon me. Young lady, will you rest your case? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, 
Run upstairs and help Barbara. She's dressing. I never need any help. It's written all over his face what he'd do if he were alone with me on a desert island. Oh, 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 oh. oh what would I do? He'd stand on my shoulders and look for a ship. <laughs> well, of all the inane, empty heads. Now, don't lose your temper. Oh, I forgot. The bad truth is I'm getting tired. You know, I'll feel better after I sample that turkey. Well, the truth is, Mr. Reynolds, close the door. Oh, that's mighty fast. Oh, 
looking for a book that combines the Christian faith, with a fantasy adventure. Creators Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight you are invited to listen to a new radio program. It's a program conceived by the people who furnish the wires that take this program and every other program to all parts of America and to all of you listeners overseas. We are the people. There are 275,000 of us, of your telephone company and the associated companies covering the rest of the country in the Bell System. It is our job to transmit the human voice clearly, faithfully, and quickly. Let you talk in person to anybody, anywhere, at any time. Would you like to hear somebody pick up the telephone here in New York, see how quickly and clearly he gets his number, and listen into the conversation? You know, every night there are a lot of interesting people from all parts of the country in New York. A number of them are in the studio now to hear our first broadcast. Let's ask one of them to make a telephone call. There's a gentleman from Indiana here. His name is Paul V. McNutt. And he's the first gentleman of Indiana because he's the governor of that state. Governor McNutt, is there anyone you would like to call? I'd like to call Indianapolis to see how my family is. Well, go right ahead, Governor. Just pick up this phone here and give the operator your number. Operator. I want to call Indianapolis. Riley, 7441. Riley, 7441. What is your number, please? El Dorado, 5, 5800. Hold the line, please. Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Riley, 7441. Hello? Hello. Is that you, Kathleen? Hello, Paul. I knew you were going to call up. Well, how on earth did you know that? I tuned in on the start of the telephone company's program and heard them say you were there in the studio. In fact, I can hear our conversation right now on the radio in the living room. Isn't it odd? It is rather unusual. I just wanted to tell you, things went very well here today, and I think I'll be home tomorrow. Then we'll be able to keep our dinner engagement tomorrow night with the Davises? Absolutely. All right. I'll call them up, dear. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> that was pretty quick work. Uh, what would a call like that cost? Well, what do you think, Governor? Oh, I don't know. Quite a way. 
I'd say between two or three dollars. No, sir. It costs only a dollar and forty cents to telephone from New York to Indianapolis after 8.30, station-to-station rate. And if Mrs. McNutt had been in San Francisco, the same call would have cost only five dollars and fifty cents. Mighty few people realize how little it does cost to phone out of town, especially after 8.30 at night. Across country, across town, the telephone keeps abreast of the faster pace of life today. Take its social use, for example. We have another visitor here in the studio, Emily Post, author of the Book of Etiquette and foremost authority on good taste. What about making social engagements, uh, issuing and accepting invitations by telephone? Is that good form, Mrs. Post? Most decidedly, it is. It's courteous to be prompt. And there isn't anything more direct than the telephone. Well, isn't it rather unusual to acknowledge an invitation to a formal dinner by telephone? Not at all. It's quite proper nowadays. You notice that Mrs. McNutt told the governor she would confirm their dinner engagement by phone. You see, the telephone is such a personal, intimate means of communication. And what's more, having a telephone has made it possible for many a girl and many a young man to be included where someone without a telephone is left out. Hmm. Now, if you were giving a dinner, Mrs. Post, just how would you extend the invitation over the telephone? I'd call up one of my friends, whether in the city or the suburbs, and after exchanging greetings, I'd say, Helen, I'm having a few friends in for dinner at 7.30 next Friday night, and I'd like to have you and John join us. I do hope you can come. You see, an invitation by telephone is more than just intimate and direct. You get your acceptances or regrets then and there, instead of waiting for them to come straggling in. Well, I'm sure that a great many people all over the country will be interested to hear these things from you, Mrs. Post. Thank you for coming down this evening. It has been a pleasure. born of the telephone, and the telephone was born of the American pioneering spirit, the American spirit of impatience with the barriers of time and distance. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are sending to you a radio program which we hope will mark a new milestone in American broadcasting. It's based upon the sense of pride and honest patriotism which each of us feels for the achievements of our country from the earliest times to the present day. As the world moves, 300 short years represent a small span in the history of civilization. But in these years, everything that we think of as American has been created, fought for, achieved. We call our program the Cavalcade of America. And in the simplest fashion at our command, we plan to tell you a group of stories each time that you honor us with your attention at this time. Stories which illustrate the stamina, courage, the vital, solid attributes of the American people. Stories that are American through and through. Stories which we feel will reach the minds and hearts and pride of all Americans, young and old. A group of distinguished educators, officials of the American Historical Association, are sponsoring these programs in the sense that they have worked with us to achieve complete accuracy in every episode. They are men and women whose names attest the historical truth and value of all these high adventures in the making of a country. The Cavalcade of America.
As you watch the American cavalcade pass in review, you find much that is not pomp and circumstance, bugle call, or cannon roar. A certain doggedness and perseverance, a willingness to fight it out at all costs, is the most distinguished attribute of the American. Let us go to the vanguard of the American cavalcade and turn the pages of history to the spring of 1621 to the Pilgrim Settlement of Plymouth, Massachusetts. The little group of men and women who have survived that first winter assemble in their rude meeting house by special order of the leader, Master Bradford. In one corner, a young woman and a young man have drawn a little apart from the rest. It is like the Sabbath, is it not, Master Winslow? All gathering here at the meeting house? Except that Master Bradford will address us instead of Elder Brewster. Hush, Peregrine, quiet, quiet. Why has he called us together, do you suppose, Master Winslow? In the very midst of a busy working day? For some good reason, you may be sure, Mr. Swank. When first I heard the sound of the drum, I thought of Indians. My heart went cold. I hurried to get Peregrine from her cradle. If there were any danger from attack from Indians, you'd not see Captain Standish resting on his musket as he is now. In truth, the Indians sooner send an arrow through your back as you work on the field than Sally in the open. No, tis other business that Master Bradford wants with us. Master Bradford looks stern and sad. Mm, There's little to make him smile these days. He grieves for his wife. Poor Mistress Dorothy. It was tragic, her drowning. Two weeks after we landed on these shores. They're about to close the doors. Everybody who's able is here. All but those who lie sick abed. So many empty benches. There remain but half as many of us now as there were when first those benches were placed there. Look. Bradford is standing. He motions to us to be quiet. Oh, they're closing the doors. We'll quiet. soon know now. My friend, the... Master Bradford's about to speak. My friend, I have called you away from your task this morning in order to speak a message of importance. A message which will shape the future of every one of you and the future of Plymouth Settlement. For four months, the good ship Mayflower has lain at anchor in this harbor, unable to return to England by reason of the fearful storms and the mortal plague that took off many of its crew. But this morning, her master came to me and informed me that, God willing, he will put off the voyage no longer. He is preparing to sail on the fifth day of April, just four days hence. Any of you who wish to return to England on the Mayflower has that privilege. You came to the new world in good faith and with high hopes. Your faith has been sorely tested these winter months. Of the 102 of us who came here, only 51 remain. Many of you have lost those who were nearest and dearest to you. If you desire to leave, to return to soft ease of old England, we who are in command here will not try to hold you. You men who are still blessed with wives and children may wish at least to send them back, even though you remain here yourselves. We would not blame you, for God alone knows what awaits us here. In four days, you must make your choice. Weigh it well. For once the Mayflower sails, there is no turning back for anybody. Now let us go again to our fields and consider well what we should do. 
I have spoken my message. Well, Master Winslow. Well, Mistress White. Good Master Bradford's news seems to have pleased you. Yes. And yet I am sad at the thought of losing some of my good friends. You are sailing, then? Perhaps. Why not? What is there for me here? I'm not a delver in the ground. I do not want to till the soil and then suffer death from scurvy. I've tried to do my best, but I don't like it. I covered a more adventurous life. Is this not a mighty venture? Are we not periled every moment by the savages? Indians, a narrow in the back, forms lurking in the forest. They don't fight us in the open. They do not meet us like an honorable foe. No, this is not adventure. This is merely hardship in a rude wilderness. True, a wilderness. It is free, though. Free and honest and God-fearing. And one can pray here in the new world as one chooses. Mm, one has time to pray here in the long, dreary winters. Why do you stay here, Mr. Swite? What is there here for you? You have suffered much and buried your husband here. And born my child here, remember. The first child to be born after landing on these shores. Then for the sake of the child, you should return to England. This is no country in which to bring up a child, particularly a girl child. And why should you be so interested in me and my child, Master Winslow? Mistress White, I hate to leave you here in this wilderness. For many months now, I've thought of you, I've... You have been very kind, Master Winslow. But do not talk of this before these folk. The meeting house is not yet empty. I've thought of you in holy love, Susanna. These many months, I've longed to take you from this bleak place back to the lovely... That will field. do, Master Winslow. Please remember that I admire and respect you. And once I thought I almost loved you. But Peregrine and I stay here and leave you the wandering ventures. We will face our hazards here as stoutly as we may. But, Susanna... If you only knew how long I've loved you, I... Good day, Master Winslow. But, Susanna... I play not with wandering dreams, and I'm holding to this place in purpose. Susanna! Susanna! On the fifth day of April, 1621, the colonists of Plymouth again assembled. This time, not in the rude little meeting house but on the rocky shore of Plymouth Harbor. All eyes are turned eastward to where the Mayflower rides at anchor, ready to set sail. On the shore, the captain, Thomas Jones, is bidding a last farewell to Governor Bradford. Well, sir, the tide will be turning straightway. I must be pushing off. We'll miss you, Captain Jones. I hate to go and leave you all stranded here, sir, in this God-forsaken country. The only countries that God forsakes, Captain, are those where people have forsaken him. The fellow I turn to for protection against that Satan's brood of savages is Captain Standish. Meaning no irreverence, sir. I wish you had more real soldiers with you like him. As yet, the Indians have made no open sally, but truly Captain Standish is doing much for us. Already many of us have mastered the use of arms. Well, Bradford, it's all right for you, I suppose. But me, I'd rather be in a hurricane in a good, tight ship than live the bleak and barren life you'll have here. When I reach London, I'll have some peace from worry and a chance for merriment. But you, 
You must fret with trouble all the time. Like this true, Master. If not these serpent Indians, will be puny crops of violent cold, starvation, or the scurvy. Master, it falls on the crew how well the ship behaves, does it not? That it does. Well, I have an apt and loyal crew working here for me on the shore, uncomplaining, sharing what they have, and facing each new hardship with godly courage. That you have, Bradford. My four months here have taught me that. Do you think any of them will leave with me? That young Thumslow standing over there by the cliff, he might go. He has no stomach for grubbing earth. He'd rather be a sailor like yourself. Marry with only half a crew and some of them not fit to stand, I could straightway put some more hands to the ropes. We need more hands ourselves. A spring planting to be had, a new building, woods to be cleared. I only hope most of the younger men decide to stay. I think they will. It will be a grievous thing to lose one man. We may need every fighter we can get. That you may. For sooth, I, I still dare hope that none of them will leave. Mayhap tis folly, but already I'm proud of our little settlement in the new world, and I mislike to see, to see anyone turn back. Mm, yes, I know your heart. Sort of like deserting the ship. Well, if you have any to take the passage, I hope they'll hasten. The tide's turning. I told them to come here to the boat, and I see none yet. Winslow seems to be undecided. He and God must choose his path. I must take leave, row out the ship, and be quick to sail at a moment's notice. But before I weigh anchor, I'll watch sharp for your signal. I'll wave a white cloth. But if any of our people change their minds, I'll fire a shot. I must give them every chance to read their own purpose. I shall wait the signal. Good hope, sir. I hope the next few months will be easier. We'll be praying for you. Good hope, Captain. And Godspeed. Oh, Master Jones. Oh, Master Jones. Oh, Oh, just a moment, if you please. Why, surely, Mistress White. Have you and your little baby decided to be our passengers? Oh, no, Master Jones. I I would not leave here. But I have a little packet for my dearest friend in London. Would it be too much to ask you to take it for me? Why, surely not, Mistress White. It's all superscribed. Here it is. I will bear it safely, Mistress White. Never fear. I must haste and weigh anchor while the tide is right. Godspeed. Godspeed. Godspeed, good master. Push her off, boys. Goodbye. Yes, Master Winslow, I I thought you were leaving us. I saw you standing near us, and I waited for you to step forward. I do not go, sir. Oh, Peregrine, hush. It's not yet too late. I shall signal the boat if you wish to leave. Master Bradford, I yearn to go. Then as I came down to the shore, a word you spoke turned my heart to a better purpose. It would be wrong to cousin you, Master Winslow. And mark you, there is yet time to change your mind. I am going now to the others. Master Bradford looks blither than I have seen him in many a month. Ah, Mistress White, you, you have speech with me once more. Since that day at the meeting house when Master Bradford broke the news of the Mayflower leaving, you've scarce bade me good morning. I beseech you, Master Winslow. I was angry because... because you were leaving. But what made you change your purpose? You angered toward me when I set my heart for England? Susanna, let me speak up. Meet my question first, Master Winslow. Why did you not leave? It was a brave word I heard Master Bradford speak to the master of the ship. He said, I mislike to see anyone turn back. That's what I was doing, turning back. 
I see it now. Edward, I too. I want not to turn back. I want to press on and make a new life here. Susanna, might we not press on together here in Plymouth? Master Winslow, take care. There are many people here. All the folk will hear you. They give no heed to us. Their eyes are fixed on the Mayflower. Oh, here comes Master Bradford. He seems bent upon a word with us. Men and women of Plymouth. (laughs) Our good friend, the Master, is at this moment boarding the ship. All sails are set. A sign from me and the Mayflower will hoist anchor... And turn her course for England. Before I give that sign, let me ask you all once more, for the last time, do any of you wish to return? It is not too late to change your minds. One word. Your last chance, Edwin. I have made my choice. Then I give the Mayflower the sign to say. Oh, 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 they're pulling up the anchor. I can see them. You're a gay sailor. You are, Master Jeremy Fuller. They're weighing anchor. They are not. They're hoisting it. I can see them. A whole line of men hauling on it. Children, hush. The ship is veering round now. The sails are filling. How white they gleam in the sun. Glad I am the sun is shining so fair today. The earth feels warm and rich at last. Look, the Mayflower gains its headway. Look, Peregrine. Look, baby. Uh, I wish she might stamp this morning on her memory. <laughs> She's looking landward. She's right, too. Why look back when there's so much ahead? Would I could see what is ahead. All that we dreamed of when we came here. All that anyone could ask for. Work. Good friends, the worship of God. And love? Yes, I think so, now. Elder Brewster has read the burial service over many of our number, but the marriage service, never. We'll be the first. Look, the Mayflower's flag is dipping. And there goes the last salute. I'm glad there's no turning back now. That fateful day, the pilgrims made their choice and flung defiance at the dark forests of New England. Their will to persevere became a cornerstone of American character, and from such people came the power to conquer a continent. Nearly two centuries later, settlers were still battling for their homes and their freedom. This time, it was a brave band of settlers who had penetrated the forests of Kentucky and erected a crude settlement called Bryan's Station not far from what is now the city of Lexington. With crude implements, they had built a palisade with a blockhouse at each corner. On the evening of August 15th, 1782, a messenger brings word that another party of settlers only a few miles away have been defeated in a fight with the Indians. Crowding about the messenger, the men of Bryan's station hear the story of the encounter. They vote to avenge the defeat, although they know savages lurk in the forest just outside the stockade walls. William Reynolds, a young pioneer who has been scouting, reports to Captain John Craig, commander of Bryan's station. But I tell you, Captain Craig, they ain't a doubt of it. I saw Indians everywhere. 
And if the men leave for Hoy's now, every woman in this station will be scalped clean. Uh, you think it's a trap, Reynolds? I reckon they're just waiting for you to march out of here to blow you all the kingdom come. Uh, where do you think most of their force is? I reckon most of them hiding around that there spring down the hill, the one where we got our water. Yeah, where are we going to do for water? We can't hold out without water. Well, there's just one thing in our favor, men. The Indians don't know we've discovered him. We've got to act like we don't know they're out there. Reynolds, gather all the women of the station here at once. Have them bring all their noggins and tails. Sure, Captain. I'll get them. Obel. Yes, sir. The Tomlinson. Coming, Captain. Yes, sir. What can we do, sir? Well, now, you think you could pick yourselves two good horses to get from here to Lexington? Yeah, sure. We, we could try. Well, get a move on. And when you get outside, don't run unless you're shot at. Yes. Act like you was going hunting. I don't think you'll be stopped. The Indians won't risk shooting until they find out how strong we are. Right, sir. We'll get Say, Captain Craig, Milo's in the baby there at my cabin outside the station. I better get him in here. All right, Morgan. I'm going to send the girls down to the spring. Have Lucy join them and bring her water back here. Yes, Captain. I'll send her and bring our baby to the fort myself. Uh, hurry up. And when you get back, take charge of the West Blockhouse. Now hurry. You can count on me, Captain. Here come the gals, Captain. Full force. They're not afraid of engines. Good, good. Is everybody here? Sure, we're here. Now, ladies, I want you to listen carefully. Come on, girls. Quiet down, girls. Well, what is it? Outside the stockade, there's a large force of Indians. Well, Indians. Hush, hush, girls. Uh, for some reason, they're lying low. I think they're waiting for us men to march on to Hoy's. Then they can get us from ambush. Now, we don't want them to know our strength. So we've got to stay here and pretend we don't know there's an Indian in the country. The longer we fool them, the better chance we have of being reinforced from Lexington. I've sent Thomason and Vale, and they may get through. If you're figuring on playing possum in this hole, you'd better hike down to the spring and draw some water. My husband didn't leave enough whiskey to last for all of us. <laughs> all right, Jemima Johnson. I'm going to ask you to lead the women down to that spring. And you better draw all the water you can. Lord, Captain, we ain't engine fighters. Why don't you lead the men down there? Because that would be playing into the Indians' hands. If you women go down there just as you do every morning and pretend that nothing is wrong, I don't think you'll be touched. The Indians want to capture the station and kill the men in it. They've gained nothing by killing you, only give themselves away. Oh, come on, gal, show some spirit. You're cocking up around here. That'll do from you, child. You ain't proved your medal yet yourself. That's more like it. Will you go, Jemima? Well, I can fill two noggins, but I can't haul water for the whole station. Who's going with me? I don't want to go. Neither do I. Now listen to me, you girls. We have to have water, don't we? We can't live without it, so we may as well chance death getting it. Sitting around here letting our men die of thirst is no way for us to act. Let the men do the shooting. We'll keep them in food and drink. Now, who's going with me? I've got a child. I don't want to leave my child. I won't go. I've got six children. And my husband is clear over to Richmond in the house of Burgesses. But I know what he'd say. When he's here, he's boss of this station. He'd say, Jemima, life ain't no joke in the wilderness. But an American settler never turns back. That's what he'd say. 
I went for water yesterday, and I'm going today. And I'm going with Reverend Jones's blessing. Yes, Jemima Johnson. God's blessing will go with you. All right. Open that gate. And those who want to follow, pick up your pail. Come on. Who's going? They're all going, thank the Lord. We're going to need every drop we can get. Open the gate, Reynolds. Yes, I don't look frightened to death, you girl. We get water every morning. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. A useless thing, girls, when you're going for water. Now act just the way you always do, so the Indians won't suspect we know they're out in the bushes. Come on now, sing. Oh, God, oh, help me. Lucy Morgan. My, she's pale. James told me to come and help you carry water into the stockade. Oh, Lucy, ain't you scared? Yes, we gotta make believe we ain't. I know. Let's talk loud. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice living outside the Palisade on a lovely morning like this. Oh, my baby. I hated to leave him even for a minute. Yes, must be fine to see the sunrise and everything. Oh, how could you do it? You... You may never see him again. I left James packing up. Oh. He's strapped the baby to his back. All right, girls, you bring your pick and I'll dip for you. Come on now, we haven't got all day. Well, another one, girl. Come on, somebody get it. No one's I thought I saw something moving over yeah. there. Where? Over there, in the brush, the other side of the spring. Pretend not to know. Okay. Let's pretend. We're fine. Come on along, Lucy Morgan. Fill up them piggins. Don't look over there. It's all right. Well, that, that's a mighty pretty white hanky you're wearing, Lucy. Mighty pretty. Yes, it, it came all the way from Richmond. Likely enough, I won't get another for a long time. Well, lovely hankies don't mean much. James Morgan can't be mollycoddling you much in this country. He gave me this kerchief when we were married. Well, now, ain't that nice? Yeah. Come on, folks. Let's be getting back. Watch out now. No spilling. Let's go. Oh, Lucy. Lucy, I saw something move. I think it was a gun barrel. What? Oh, I wish we'd hurry. If your mama would stop singing, she'd be able to walk fast. Hurry. Hurry. Quit pushing me. Oh, I'm spilling the water. Hurry. Oh, look. They're opening the gate. Hurry. I'm turning off here. No. My baby. I'm be sure he's safe. Oh, don't leave us, Lucy. You'll be killed. Let James bring the baby. No, I must be sure. Goodbye. Don't leave us. Hey, Lucy, come back here. Don't go back to your cabin. Come back. Oh, Jemima, stop Lucy from going. Too late now. If she do what James tells her, instead of worrying about that baby, she'd be better off. Well, here we are. Good work, girls. Oh, oh, my, I was so scared. I'm trembling all over. Thank God you got back safely. See any Indians, Jemima? I didn't see any, but I could sort of feel them out there. The birds were quiet, and there was quite a bit of movement in the cornfield. Reynolds, you better close that gate. Jemima, you and the girls take that water to the central cabin. Then stand behind the men at the loopholes and help them reload. All right, Captain. Don't stand there shaking, girl. Come on, let's get to work. Jemima, you see anything in the Morgans? They aren't in from their cabin yet. Lucy Morgan went to the spring with us. James told her to draw water and come back here, but she got scared about a baby and went back to her cabin. Oh, that's bad. I wish they'd hurry. We need everybody here. The Indians will attack those outside cabins first. I tried to stop her. Captain Craig, engines, engines! Hold your fire, Reynolds. Let you follow away. Don't waste time in the ship. They're down there by Morgan's cabin. I saw them. Every man to his station. 
And don't shoot unless you have a real target. Look, look, they're creeping up on Morgan's cabin. There's Morgan. He's making a run for us. He's running. He'll never make it. Look, he's got the baby strapped to his back. Where's Lucy? All right, boys. We'll cover his retreat with a volley. Let him have it. Come on, Morgan. Open the gate, Reynolds, quick. Thank God. Here, take the baby off my back, will you? Uh, good work, Morgan. I thought we'd lost you. Reynolds, take that baby to Jemima. Get back here as fast as you can. Yeah. Where's your wife, Morgan? I left her under the cabin in that little cellar. There was no time. I thought she'd be safer there until dark. Will they find her there? No, I don't think so. We were just about to make a break for it when I saw the Indians coming. I put Lucy in the cellar and moved a big piece of slab rock over it. Then the Indians broke down the door and found me there alone. I shot one of them and dropped my gun and I ran for it. Good work. Now get a gun and take charge of the Northwest Blockhouse. Yes, sir. Indians! Indians! They fired your cabin, Morgan. Look, the flames are coming through the roof. Quick! Quick, let me out, Captain Craig. I've got to get back. Lucy, she'll suffocate in that cellar. It's too late, Morgan. You can't go back now. The whole thing's ablaze. She'll burn to death, I tell you. Get out of my way, Captain. I'm going back. Drive him, Reynolds. Hold it. Get away back, Jade. Let me go. I've got to go back. Oh, steady, Morgan. It's too late now. And we need you here alive. All right. But I'll have my revenge, I tell you. I'll kill every filthy redskin this side of Blue Lick. Give me a gun. Give me a gun. And so the battle raged. The Indians attacking from the woods by the spring were fought back with desperate courage. Some of them even reached the stockade and threw burning torches out of the rough clapboard roofs of the cabins on the western side. For a while, as the blaze raged, the pioneers lost hope. Then a breeze blew across the settlement, blowing the sparks away from the walls. And the fire, finding no more fuel, gradually died out. Now and then, a flaming arrow fell on a roof of the settlement... But the boys of the garrison, lying on the inward sloping roofs, plucked the arrows and threw them away before damage was done. At sunset, all firing stopped. A figure came out of the forest bearing a white flag. It stood on a stump and hailed the station. Hurry there at the station! Listen to me! It's Gertie! Hello, me? I'm Simon Gertie. I fought this army... We represent the British government. I'm giving you one chance to surrender in the name of the British. If you don't, we'll blow you to pieces. We'll have four cannon here in the morning. Yeah, we'll blow you to kingdom come. Yeah, we know you, Simon Gertie, you skunk of a white engine. Sure, we know you. I got a cur dog I've named after you. Go ahead, bring up your cannon. We ain't wasting ammunition on you. We've switches and we'll whip you out of here. We ain't white engines. We're real white. And when we settle, we stick. See? And while young Reynolds flung his desperate defiance at the enemy, Morgan crept from the stockade. He could wait no longer. He must see for himself what lay under the ashes of his cabin, whether there was any hope that Lucy might still be alive. The lurid light of Indian campfires shone against the forest, but no shots disturbed the silence. 
In the station, the pioneers waited for the attack, waited for the cannon that would blow the stockade to pieces and put them at the mercy of the scalping knife. In the early dawn, Reynolds stood by the stockade gate and tried to keep awake. Who's there? It's Morgan. Let me in quick. Call a hobby. What's he doing outside the stockade? Are you crazy? No. I had to see. I had to make sure. Your wife, was she... Did you find her or anything? Lucy's dead. I found bones. Charred bones. That's all. There was an Indian sneaking around the ruins with her handkerchief. He's dead, too, now. If we ever get out of here alive, we'll get every man in the territory and we'll wipe them engines off the face of the earth. If we get out of here alive... The water's most gone, too. Captain says if help doesn't come pretty soon... Who's that? Captain Craig, it's the messenger! Open the gate! It's Tomlinson! This way, Tomlinson! Here's Captain Craig! Tomlinson. They've gone, Captain. The Indians have gone. How do you know they've gone, Tomlinson? And he looked in the woods? Are you sure it's not a trap? Plenty sure, Captain. I rode all around over yonder, and they're all gone down the track toward Blue Lick. I picked up their tracks and followed them a mile or more. No sign of cannon? No, sir. So that cannon threat was just a trick. Well, folks, I guess we've outguessed them once again. But the trouble isn't over. Don't you believe that? We've got to join forces with Hoyes and the other stations and run the Redskins clean out of the country. And they'll strike again. And this time, we must strike first. Captain Craig? I'm believing right now, before we're cut off again. Oh, that's the spirit, Morgan. You've shown a lot of courage. Uh, courage? No, it isn't that. What have I to live for without Lucy? Well, let's get started. Look, look, look down by the spring. There's something's moving. Close the gates. To the loopholes. Take four men to man the West Blockhouse. Ellis, cover the eastern wall. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not an engine. He's a white man. He's staggering. It's, it's a woman. Open the gate. Help her. What? Wait, Lucy. Oh, it's Lucy. Or a ghost. Lucy, Lucy. I'm all right. I'm all right. The baby. Oh, there, there, Lucy. Darling, rest easy. The baby's snug and happy with old your mama. But, Lucy, I went to the cabin. There were charred bones. I thought... Oh, let her rest a spell, James. She's been through enough. I'm all right, Jemima. When you left, James, two engines came in and fought over those two bright dresses of mine and those English knives. Oh, darling. I could hear them fighting and rolling on the slab above me. It scared me, James, and I shrieked. One engine killed the other. I heard him fall. And when I shrieked, the other one lifted the slab and took me with him. He fired the cabin. Then what I saw was the bones of the dead Indian? Yes, James. I was tied to a tree till this morning when the Indians retreated. They moved fast and left me. I got the song loose. And now I'm very tired. And I want my baby. Captain Craig, I ask your permission, sir, to take my wife and boy back to Lexington as soon as possible. All right, certainly, Morgan. Take two good horses. And there may be others who care to go back. I'll send an escort. Take six wild children back to Lexington because of a few Indians, not me. No, James, I don't want to go back. Me neither. Nor me. No room there. No turning back. The courage.
courage of the pioneers of Bryan Station and other forts along the frontier did much to win the revolution and American freedom. And then, slowly but surely, the cavalcade moved westward, winning a continent, battling doggedly against nature and the red man. After the pioneers came the farmers, and they too rank high in our history. A century and a half had passed. It is the summer of 1931. The scene is the kitchen of a small South Dakota farmhouse. Sarah Winslow is busily preparing supper. Well, I'll give the biscuits just about five minutes more. By that time, your father ought to be here again. Mom, uh, I... Yes, Ned? This is July. <laughs> Anybody who's been canning tomatoes over a hot stove all day don't have to be told that. College opens in September. September 24th, the catalog says. What's the chances, do you think, am I getting to go? Oh, it's too early to say yet, son. The summer has started out good. Crops are pretty promising. Nothing happens. I guess your father will be in a position to spare you in the fall. Take on a hired man in your place. I won't ask a cent from Dad. With what I've saved and what I can earn, I'll get along fine. Well, we'll see. I don't want to make any promises like we did last summer and then have to break them. Gosh, what a summer that was. Not a drop of rain for 17 long weeks. Mm, can't even bear to think about it. Waking up morning after morning to see that sun like a great ball of copper. And the crops drying up, shriveling, shrieking for water. That's the worst of farming. You work and you worry and you break your back for months. Then along comes a drought or a freeze or a, or a flood or some kind of a blight. And where are you? Worse off than when you started. I know. Yeah, we keep on farming just the same. I'm not so sure that I will. When I finish college, I might get myself a job in Now, a... your family have been farmers for generations, Ned Winslow. And I guess you're not going to give it up for any white-collar city job. Why, your great, great, great... <laughs> well, I don't know how, quite how many greats it was, but your grandfather was one of the first white men to plant corn in this country. The Indians showed him how. Yeah, and his fool descendants have been planting corn ever since. Be burned up by the sun, or rotted by rain, or, or eaten up by pests. What is your saying about pests? <laughs> your son was just getting in practice for the college debating team, that's all. <laughs> oh, and meanwhile, like as not, my biscuits are burned to a crisp. Well, as a matter of fact... Now, you two get your hands and faces washed, and I'll have things dished up in a jiffy. All right. Oh, oh hold on. Wait a minute, Father. Mm -hmm. Why, Welcome. you got a couple of grasshoppers on your coat, see? Oh. Oh, don't brush them off in here. Go outside. I don't want them nasty things to start hopping around my kitchen. There's an awful lot of grasshoppers around lately, just in the last few days. Have you noticed? Yeah, I picked half a dozen of them off the cucumber vines this morning. They were eating the leaves as greedy as anything. Now, if they don't eat anything more valuable than your cucumber vines, we'll be lucky. You talk as if my cucumber vines didn't matter. Well, we don't depend on cucumbers for our living. My cucumber pickles taking second prize at the state fair for three years now. And if it don't take first prize this year, I... Oh, there's one of those pesky creatures under the sink. What of it, Mom? They're harmless. No, no, not this variety. What do you mean, Dad? Well, these ain't the regular, ordinary variety of grasshoppers that you get every summer. They're, they're a special breed. Yeah, they got a couple of stripes down their backs. I noticed that. An appetite that's never satisfied. An appetite for what? Anything, everything. Why, Chad Sunderland was telling me today they had the same thing in Colorado one summer, about ten years ago. 
And when they got through devouring the crops, they, they even made the binder twine. Oh, oh Father, I can't <laughs> believe it. Well, if you don't mind holding supper a few minutes, Mother, I, I'd like to put in a phone call. Everything will get cold. Couldn't it wait till after supper? No, no, I want to get hold of the county agent and ask him what to do about these grasshoppers. Well, is there anything you can do? Tad tells me they used poison for them in Colorado. Poison? Uh-huh. Made some kind of a mash and mixed arsenic with it. Spread it around their field. Nice job for a hot July day. Uh, you dish things up and get started. I'll be right back. All right. Come on, son. So you got cucumber pickle on the table, Mom. Mm, we always have cucumber pickles with cold ham. You may not next season, according to Dad. With these grasshoppers, I mean. Oh, I'll protect my cucumber vines. Don't you worry. I'll cover them over so the grasshoppers don't see them. <laughs> it's the green color that attracts them. Yeah, the grasshoppers will probably all be gone in a little while, though. You know, Dad's an awful alarmist. Always expecting the worst. The worst has happened so many times. That's why. The drought last year just about ruined him. Oh, here he comes now. Ned, don't say anything to him this evening about college. He's not in the mood to talk about it. I can see. All right, Mom. Well, Father, what did he say? Uh, seems just about every farmer in the county is calling him all of a sudden to find out how we're going to fight this grasshopper plague. Weeks pass. A cloud of grasshoppers darkens the sun and it settles over the fields, leaving them barren of crops and the farmers in desperate poverty. Finally, one hot August afternoon, we find Sarah in her kitchen. Hello, Jane. Hello, Sarah. I just dropped in for a second. We're on our way to the prayer meeting up in Jones Field. Are you going? Yes, just since Edward and Ned get in. They've been working day and night, scattering poison mash. But there's so much ground to cover, and only the two of them to do it. How about your cucumber vines? Were you able to save them? <laughs> My cucumber vines? Goodness me, didn't I tell you what happened to them? No. Last I heard, you were keeping them covered with dish towels. You won't believe it, but those grasshoppers ate the vines, dish towels, and all. Well, I can believe it. You heard about the experience the Lindstrom's had, didn't you? What? You know, the Swedish family that leased the old Fuller farm? Yeah, yeah. What happened? They decided the best way to get rid of the grasshoppers was to send their turkeys out into the fields to eat them up. Yes. They figured they'd do two things at the same time, clean out the grasshoppers and fatten up the turkeys. Oh. <laughs> well, I must say, the idea of eating a Thanksgiving turkey that's been stuffed with grasshoppers kind of takes my appetite away. Mm, I should say so. Well, when the turkeys came back home to roost that night, <laughs> them grasshoppers had stripped them as bears if they'd been plucked in your own kitchen. <laughs> How can you laugh, Jane? I think it's dreadful. Well, if I didn't laugh at some of the things that's happening these days, Sarah, I'd go crazy. John's so worried sick he can't eat in your sleep. If something don't happen pretty soon, I don't know what we'll do. There's nothing we can do but go on. We can't quit. How does young Ned feel about it? I hear he ain't the crazy about farming. Oh, he's all right, but... Well, Ned, don't set much store by praying, I'm afraid. Mm. He says the only thing that'll bring relief is spraying. Spraying poison. And big enough quantities to really kill the pests. Well, folks pray for rain and for relief from famine and war and pestilence. If the Lord can send relief for them things, I guess he can send relief for a plague of grasshoppers. Mm. Well, the folks are waiting out in the car. I better be going. We'll see you at the service. Only a step for us. Walking's better than driving anyway. Why, just coming the short distance we did, our car got stalled twice. Grasshoppers clogging up the radiator. Goodness. 
Well, goodbye. Goodbye, Jane. Hello, Edward. Going to the service? Hello, Jane. Yes, yes, we're going as soon as Mother's ready. See you there. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'll be ready in a minute, Edward. Mm -hmm. Just let me get my hat. My, but it's hot. Must be 110 in the shade. The weather report over the radio said it was the hottest August 14th in, oh, don't know how many years. Mm, Seems hotter when there's no green in sight. Well, I'm ready now. All right. Coming to the service, Ned? Oh, well, I suppose so. Oh, it won't hurt you any. Well, let's start. Yeah, come on. My, it's even hotter out here. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Mother, I uh, saw Miss Granister in town this morning. Told me to tell you goodbye. They're leaving? They've left. She said she'd driven over here to see you before they went, but it was all decided so sudden. Where are they going? Someplace, she says, where there's no grasshoppers or droughts or floods. Then they're giving up farming for good? Looks that way. Well, they show good sense. The rest of us ought to do the same thing. You don't really mean that, son. Sure I do, Dad. What's the use of breaking your back and breaking your heart? Farming. Oh, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to plant and cultivate and harvest crops, feed the rest of the world. Your cities are all right and fine, but... Where would they be without the farmer? Where would they get their bread and their butter and their milk and their other foodstuffs? A lot of food they'll get from us this year. Look, Dad. Mm-hmm. Look at that field we're passing now. Yeah. Just stubble. Not a thing left. There's always another year ahead of us, though. That's the great thing about farming. No matter how bad one season may be, there's always the hope and the chance that the next year will be a good one. If you can live till the next year on nothing but hope... We've still got our cows and chickens, a few acres of corn. We're fighting a losing battle, Dad. What can you and I do, scattering poison by hand against billions of grasshoppers? The government may provide aid. The government. They promised help, but where is it? When does college open, son? College? Why, 24th of September. Better write. Send in your application. Why, I... I... Dad. I know how you feel about farming, boy. I know how bad you want to get away. I'd be the last person on earth to try and keep you here. But, Dad, I I couldn't go and leave you in a jam like this. We can get along. Would would you and Mother leave, too? How about it, Mother? Leave the farm? Our lease expires this fall. But why should we leave? Because times are bad. Oh, that's no reason. Others are quitting. Not this family. Our folks have been farmers for generations, Father. Yours and mine, both. The Winslows and the Morgans. They fought all the things that we've been fighting. And they won out. Well, looks like the service is about to start. Oh, my. Look at Jones Field. Just a lot of stubble. Last year it was waving corn. And now everybody in the county must be there. Seems funny, don't it, be gathering for prayer in a field. There's no church in the county big enough to hold this congregation. Anyhow, it's it's more fitting to pray out here. It's our fields that have been laid waste, after all. Farmers do have courage. Look, the minister's standing in front of that great wooden cross. Mm -hmm. Let's stop here where we can see him. All right, yes, we we can hear just as well here. Sure, yes. Oh, there's poor Mrs. Nardquist. She's crying. Well, you can't blame her. She lost her whole crop and 
She's only been out here two years. I must speak to her after the service. Maybe there's a little something we could do for her. Yes, yes. I hear she's almost starving. Gee, there must be over a thousand people here. And every one dog-tired from fighting grasshoppers. You know, it's funny. A lot of them are worse off than we are. But somehow, they don't look as if they were licked. Look, the minister's holding up his hand for quiet. Let us bow our heads in prayer. You know, Dad, there's something about these farmers all out here praying. It gets me. There is something in farming, sir. I guess that's why your mother and I are staying. I'm staying, too. No, 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 don't you do it. You go to college like you planned. You've already put it off one year. It won't hurt me to wait a little longer. Dad, mm-hmm. I've got some money saved. I, It's yours. I want you to have it. What? Why, son? We'll see this thing through together. You and Mother and I. Boy, I can't tell you how I feel you're saying you'll stick with us. Listen, what's that? Oh, it's a plane, Mom. A mail plane. Why, the mail plane ain't due here for three hours. Father, hmm? Ned, look. What? The, yeah, what the is... plane, look. Oh, gosh, but it's flying low. That cloud that's following it, what is it? Why? Poison bait. It's a government plane. Scattering poison. It's manna from heaven. That's what it is. Our prayers have been answered. Our fields are already white with it. He's flying towards Granister Farm now. The farm they left. Yes. I'm glad I stayed. I'm glad we stayed. been in all our country's history, we are called to face new and even greater problems with the courage and fearlessness of those who went before us in the cavalcade of America. The pioneer spirit of today faces new fronts with the old courage, and within the organizations of such companies as your telephone company, men strive toward making life fuller and better. This urge to go forward, the determination to stick it out in the face of overwhelming odds, is the attribute which describes perhaps better than any other the life of one of America's great industrial pioneers, Theodore N. Vail, a man whose whole life was dedicated to making a dream come true, a dream that someday American men and women would talk clearly to each other across this continent. Mr. Vail pushed the long-distance telephone in every direction in spite of opposition and the most appalling difficulties. With his great friend, General Carty, who solved his engineering difficulties, he welded the entire nation into a closer communion than had ever been thought possible. But still, he was unsatisfied. He had been unable to get a really clear connection between San Francisco and New York. That is to say, clear enough to satisfy Mr. Vale. There are many legends about the actual opening of the transcontinental line, All telephone history is a little clouded in myths, but the version we like best is this. Time and again, Mr. Vale said, Carty, your connection with the coast is still not good enough for the American people. And then one January night in 1915, 
Well, Mr. Vale, at that time president of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, was at Jekyll Island off the Georgia coast. The telephone rang. Mr. Vale picked up the receiver. Hello? This is Vale speaking. Hello, Mr. Vale. This is Cardi. Hello, Cardi. Where are you? I'm talking from New York. Why, it sounds as if you were in the next room. You think the quality is good? Yes. But how are you getting along, Carty, in linking New York with San Francisco? We're coming along fine. Well, when you get as clear a connection between New York and San Francisco as you and I have now between New York and Georgia, I'll accept it. Well, then, Mr. Vale, it's already accepted. What do you mean, Carty? I mean that this conversation we're holding is not going direct from New York to Jekyll Island. It's going by way of Buffalo, Chicago, and Denver to San Francisco, and back through Kansas City, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Atlanta to Jekyll Island. a great achievement. And the 20 years since that first coast-to-coast telephone connection have brought forth even greater achievements. Nations have been linked with nations, continents with continents. In 1921, radio broadcasting came into being, and the telephone company had a new set of problems to conquer in another field of communications. Indeed, this very program to which you are listening is made possible by telephone equipment and thousands of miles of lines which link together the widely scattered stations in this coast-to-coast network. Today's president of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company is Mr. Walter S. Gifford. He is here tonight, and he would like to say a few words. Mr. Gifford. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed this program. We want it to be more, if possible, than just an hour of radio entertainment. We want it to be a real contribution to broadcasting. And we believe the radio public wants an hour of this sort. Particularly do we hope that the younger people will feel an interest in this program. And with that purpose in mind, we will hold a series of nationwide essay contests, which we are going to call the Bell System Scholarships. Mr. Utel will tell you about them now. Thank you. Bell System Scholarships will be awarded each month to two groups of students. Boys and girls from 14 to 19 years of age and boys and girls from 8 to 13 who write the best essays on the American attributes and national characteristics dramatized in the cavalcade of America. For the older group, there will be each month a first prize of $500, a second prize of $200, a third prize of $50, and 25 prizes of $10 each. For the younger group, There will be these prizes, $250 first prize, $100 second prize, $25 third prize, and 25 prizes of $5 each. For full information about these Bell System scholarships, apply to your telephone company or to the station to which you are listening. You will receive an entry blank together with a booklet in which you will find printed the episodes presented in the Cavalcade of America. We invite you to join us again next Friday evening at the same hour when your telephone company in the Bell System will continue the Cavalcade of America.
Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.